Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Pagans Tonight Radio Network, the voice of the pagan world. Pagans Tonight is sponsored by Witchschool.com, your anyone, anytime, anywhere magical education. And good evening, everyone. You're listening to a special broadcast of Pagans Tonight Radio, the Global Wicca Summit where we are talking and discussing this week about the ideas and of Wicca being a global faith. And I am very fortunate this evening. I'm, as you know me, I'm at the Pagan, at Sir Farrell as, as of late. And, um, and we're now talking to the esteemed uh, Phyllis Croft this evening, uh, who has many accolades to her name, but I think one of the most important ones for me is friend, and more, even more important, uh, and even more to the uh, community, as an individual who is one of the first Wiccan priestesses to come out public, to speak in a way publicly, and to actually, um, in my opinion, deal with the religion in the way the world works. And I'm hoping that she'll be able to share insights with us tonight. Um, she has so many accolades, but the one that I think that is most important for, to me, as always love that, is that she is an educator. I'm above all with uh, several books coming, several books out that I've, I've been fortunate and a new one coming out, um, and we'll talk about that this evening. But welcome, Phyllis. Hi. It, it's really yeah. uh, a pl- it's always a pleasure to do Pagan Talk Radio with you guys, and, and it's especially a pleasure to do it tonight in the context of this project that you're doing, which I think is really fun, fascinating, and, and ultimately important, really important. Well, thank you. Um, for those who 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 I'm aware, yeah, we're doing the Global Wiccan Summit, which we're reaching out to Wiccans all over the world to ask some very basic questions about our faith our, in, in being on a global basis. And this all originates out of the Parliament, which uh, Archpriestess Parat was involved with right from the beginnings. Uh, 1993, she was one of the first uh, Wiccan leaders to actually get involved in the interfaith movement. Um, can you share a little bit about how you got involved with, with that? But more importantly, I think, the question I have in front of me that people have asked is that, how did you come to the faith? Uh, well, yeah, okay. So we'll we have to do the Reader's Digest version, but to get the full length, sure, <laughs> you can read the first book, <laughs> Book of Shadows. Um, book of Shadows, right? Yeah, which I think is still my favorite of the of the four that I have now mm-hmm. written. Um, it really was magic. I mean, it really. Truly was magic. It was. I, um, I mean, I grew up in a humanist family, intellectual, uh, politically progressive, not at all religious. Although I was acutely aware of um, the anti-Semitism with which my mother's side of the family had had to deal um, as European and Russian Jews, um, and I, I guess it was a kind of interfaith family. My father was. Uh, his background was Norwegian, but there were also um, Catholics and Episcopalians and Lutherans. Um, but they themselves were uh, intellectuals, and they basically raised me with um, um, a belief in the goodness of the human heart. Nothing more extravagantly uh, hopeful than that. Um, and uh, the golden rule. And they basically, when all my friends were going off to Hebrew school or Catholic school, and I asked what we were. They said, well, you know, we believe in the goodness of the human heart and the golden rule. And when you grow up, you know, a lot of people have, 
have killed each other over the question whether God exists. When you're all grown up, if you're still interested, you can go find out. I was totally not interested. I was um, off mm-hmm. becoming a social justice lawyer. Um, uh, my first job was fighting organized crime and trade unions, um, which was pretty crazy to begin with, and particularly so for a young woman because it was uh, 1979, uh, 1980, mm-hmm. and there were uh, 5% of lawyers were women, and, and um, we were treated like uh, third-class citizens, let alone second. So it was tough. And, but during my um, second year in law school, um, you know, now I understand it was a shamanic break, and I think it was a couple of things. I mean, I think it was because of the overdevelopment of my intellectual brain, and you know, that that rational, hyper-rational side. Um, and and it was, um, I mean, you know, there were, you know, I could point to all sorts of things that may have contributed to it. Where I was living um, at the time in. A, you know, a cold water flat uh, that had been part of the Italian American community uh, in uh, the West Village of New York. I, or it could have just been the time, you know, the moment for whatever reason. But um, I began to have precognitive dreams, and I began to um, have kind of extraordinary uh, sense perceptions and. Um, could anticipate what somebody was going to say before they said it, and a lot of really um, sort of things for which I had no, you know, I mean, it was the late 70s. It wasn't California. I had, was too young. I'd missed out on, you know, the whole psychedelic 60s. I, you know, I had no framework. Um, so I started reading quantum physics, and then that led me into quantum f- physics and consciousness, and none of it really explained why any of it was happening went to Washington to be a, a young social activist lawyer fighting organized crime, came back, ended up coming back to New York to work for a foundation. The magic had stopped. All the sort of spontaneous experiences that I'd been having for a year or two had stopped. But, but in fact, they hadn't. And a series of really amazing coincidences and synchronicities and a friendship with a woman who called herself a white witch led me to... The, the Magical Child, which was a, an occult uh, bookstore in New York on 19th Street, um, and a group of witches who uh, offered me the opportunity to, to study with them. And I was like, well, you know, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> you know, I was very polite, you know, but to myself I was thinking, they're weird, very weird. And I left. Um, and I went back to struggling with my new career, and then um, one day, in the midst of, of struggling, trying to figure out what I was going to do next, because um, you can imagine, you know, public interest jobs, uh, fighting organized crime and trade unions were few and far between, um, I was wandering around the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which had been a, um, a very uh, special place to me during the stressful uh, final years of law school, I used to go there and just wander around, and I always found myself in the Egyptian collection. And um, and I was wandering through the new uh, American sculpture wing when suddenly I was confronted with a figure who had appeared t- repeatedly uh, in dreams that I had had that had repeated four or five times um, those last years of law school. 
it was a woman, and she was seated, uh, bare, bare-chested, with a sort of a drape over her lap, holding uh, a book. She was wearing it. There was a crown on her head, and in the dream, she had had a light at her throat, and um, the woman seated in front of me had a six-pointed star on uh, a chain uh, at her throat. Uh, And obviously it was a statue. It was a marble statue. Um, And it was uh, stunning. Uh, It was absolutely stunning. And the room bleached very white. I got very hot and uh, disoriented. And I'll never forget, a guard came over and helped me sit down. Um, And when I sort of pulled myself together, and I don't know how long it took, I, I couldn't look at her. I stared at her toes, and um, there was a little plaque, and I looked at it first, and it said the Libyan Sybil, and then I slowly looked up and and studied her, and it was the woman from my dream, and um, with more detail. She'd been sculpted by a guy called uh, William Westmore Story, who in fact was a lawyer uh, who had moved to Rome in the 1800s, and there's a marvelous story about her that I learned very slowly over the last 40 years. Um, But I went home, and I looked at the word Sybil, which I knew was vaguely magical, but I didn't really know what it meant. And it said, I looked looked it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, and it said, uh, an ancient prophetess, a witch. So I called my friend, the white witch, I said, you think they'll still have me? Because it was months before. And she said, you're crazy not to go. Very few people have these opportunities. They don't ask people. It's, you sh- that's great. You should go. And so the next week uh, I went, and I kept going back. I had no idea what they were doing. It made no sense to me. They would stand in a circle and and gesticulate in the four directions and talk about goddesses and pass a goblet around the first time. It totally freaked me out. It was, turned out to be grape juice. I, you know, I didn't know what they were doing. Um, but they were fascinating. Um, there were about 40, 50 women, and each week there were fewer. And they were every age and every race. And um, some were gay and some were straight and some were artists and some were writers and some were you know, dental <laughs> assistants. And it was just a really fascinating group of women and each week there were fewer and finally after about two months there were eight of us left and two priestesses and they basically announced uh, one day they said well this is the coven this is going to be the, the mother grove of the Minoan sisterhood and I had been so naive I was like coven <laughs> yeah. coven this is a coven they were like yeah well what do you think it was um but by that point, I had sort of begun to discern some meaning in what they were doing. And, and I certainly was a feminist. And although the notion of goddess was as sort of odd to me as the notion of God, um, I, I sensed, you know, witches, that maybe they could somehow help me jumpstart that spontaneous magic that I had experienced in which I had truly felt the presence of the divine. Um, I felt that the universe was alive and uh, conscious and very interactive and fully magical. And indeed, that was the case. And 
they the two priestesses were working class Italian Americans. They explained nothing. They simply started practicing. They had both been initiated um, in the Gardnerian tradition because that was you know that and a little bit of Alexandrian tradition that you know very little around. Um, and but they had sort of broken away. Um, to form an all-women's group. And um, um, with Eddie Bozinski, who had started an all-men's group, uh, which was very radical at the time. And it was supposed to be all gay women, but they couldn't find enough of them to have a coven of gay women. So it was half gay and half straight. And and we practiced. We cast circle. We honored the four directions. We invoked the goddess. We danced. We chanted. Uh, we absolutely altered consciousness at will. Uh, we cast spells. We made magic. Things happened in the most extraordinary and, I mean, you know, impossible ways. Um, and I was initiated. And I studied with them for another two years and became a, a high priestess. And, and then I became public. I was public in 1982, 1983. And at the same time, I started practicing core shamanism. I was in the very first group that that came out of Mike, Professor Michael Horner's, the Foundation for Shamanic Studies. Well before the it was a found before he created the foundation, when he was simply teaching at the New School, and I was part of the original Brooklyn group that said, "Sounds good, let's do it." So from the very beginning, um, I was doing both every week simultaneously. And when it was time for me to start my own circle, it was very much um, uh, a weaving together of the two. And and I saw very clearly from the very beginning that although there were these um, ceremonial, magical uh, points of origin, um, and you know the you know, the the um, Masonic influence, and you know the things that. At the time, we didn't fully understand, but now we do because it's 40 years later and people have done a lot of self-examination and, you know, historical analysis and Ronald Hutton, and et cetera, et cetera. You know, at the time, we had the myth of our origin that we were an unbroken hereditary lineage. I think now we understand that we are practicing a tradition that was remade from bits and pieces and broken shards and elements of... a profound pre-Christian and very shamanic ancestral, indigenous ancestral tradition. And um, and it was, I think if I hadn't been practicing shamanism at the same time, I would not have recognized the shamanic roots of Wicca. Um, but to me, it's those roots that make it universal. So it has the very distinct Anglo-Saxon and as it, you know, because it was a uh, a revival, it has Celtic elements, et cetera. Um, and as it grew, and because of the feminist aspect in the 80s with all the, you know, with so many women, we integrated the Eleusinian mysteries. And, you know, whatever we could find, we cobbled together. Um, and, but at the heart of it, at the heart of it, um, is a is an is an indigenous ancestral and therefore deeply shamanic tradition which 
was pretty clear from the beginning. The casting of circle, the honoring of the four directions, the invocation of deity, the experience of um, the divine in, in uh, realms of spirit, which we had access to by altering consciousness, but from which when we returned, we, we returned altered and therefore able to see the sacred in the world in which we live, able to experience the divine embodied in the world in which we live, not just, you know, in the patriarchal model of God the Father in heaven, elsewhere, right, transcendent, or the New Age idea of light mm-hmm. and energy and other and angels and something beyond the body, but the body as uh, not merely temple, but as as manifestation of divinity, right? And uh, and all of the earth and all of creation as this interconnected um, whole, this totality of which um, we're an integral part that has lost its way. So, I mean, to me, um, I mean, I love all of the cultural particulars of Wicca that are distinctly British, distinctly, you know, the Anglo-Saxon. I mean, Anglo-Saxon is not British, right? It arrived from the continent continent in uh, 500 uh, AD, which is when the word mm-hmm. witch, witcha, Wicca, arrives in England. Um, it arrives from the continent. In fact, it's, it, its roots are proto-Indo-European, goes way back. Um, so it is that, that shamanic root, which is in part is universal. Um, so I, I think the longer we practice it, um, this, for me, the longer I have practiced it, the simpler it's become, the more lovely I find the cultural specifics, um, and yet the more universal uh, I find both practices and the wisdom derived from the practices. So that my perspective, and, and I think it's reflected, we see it, um, and I think this is one of the wonderful things that which school has sort of been on the cutting edge of, you know, in part because of your uh, foresight, your apprehension of uh, the potential of the web, and of you know attempting to to bring the wisdom out from the broom closet, right, and to make it accessible to people, which I know was very controversial initially, but but um, in doing so, right, you helped to seed this around the world. Um, and that's how the universal wisdom, the universal, the, the, the practices and mm-hmm. the wisdom derived from the practices are indeed universal. So you have your cultural you know, particulars, right? If you're living in Australia, you're not, you, you know, you're, you're not celebrating Beltane uh, when, in fact, you should be celebrating Samhain because the seasons are reversed, right? Because it's an earth-based tradition. So, right, so you practice, and because it's an earth-based tradition, you work with the spirits of place and et cetera. Um, but that's part of what makes it, that's part of its, you know, its shamanic uh, integrity. Um, but in, in disseminating the wisdom out to the world, you get these, you get the, the think local, right, Lo, you know, the spirits of place, the genius lochi, the cultural specifics of where you are, um, of what you've been raised in. But 
but there is this underlying universal matrix um, which most shamanic traditions share. Certainly that's been my experience, whether you know it's been drumming with a, a, a Siberian shaman or um, having the most profound magical experiences with hope, the Hopi or um, you know, um, Yoruban priests. It's, there are these great truths that because it's a spiritual practice and not a dogmatic belief system, um, because it's a practice and the, the essential practices are, are universal um, and because you know, we share a common teacher, which is the earth itself, the, the divine embodied within Mother Earth as the earth, um, we come to particular conclusions about where we are in the earth, but universal um, conclusions because uh, we are all on you know, we're all children of Mother Earth. I've been saying, you know, a lot lately, it, it sort of became the mantra for this fourth book that I'm doing for Hay House that's going to be out in November. They asked me to do a book, a, a very basic book on Wicca. And I hadn't written for 10 years because I'd been on this spiritual adventure um, with the Green Man, and um, who uh, is incredibly universal and took me all over the globe. Um, and they asked me to do this little book and I hadn't written in 10 years because I, I, I was so overwhelmed with the, the the mystery of what was being revealed to me in a, right. in a discoveries that I sort of I couldn't write you know I was, I was in this rapture and this this journey and I thought oh god a, a book I'm like but it was such it was the perfect book to go back to beginner's mind and revisit um, the the essential practices and the meaning mm-hmm. of them. And suddenly, you know, it, it had become quite simple, quite clear, and incredibly profound, right? Um, and, I, and I found myself saying again and again, it's sort of the tagline of the book, you don't have to be wicked, just like you don't have to be Hindu to practice yoga, right? And you don't have to be Buddhist to meditate. You don't have to be Wiccan to master the practices of Wicca and to benefit from those practices, to, to, to use them to take off the blindfold, to see the sacred in yourself mm-hmm. and in realms of spirit and in others and in the world in which you live. Um, and that's its universal power. And I, I believe it's as true for somebody in Japan as it is for someone in Africa. And, and, and because it's paganism... Because, I hate that word, but because it's indigenous, right? It respects local incarnation, the genus loci. So it 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 is adaptable to local form, um, local deity, uh, Egyptian or African or whatever, and and yet it can still be Wicca. It can still be Wicca. I mean, yeah, I, I, that could be an interesting conversation. Can it be Wicca if it's no longer rooted in in England? And I, my answer is, yeah. I mean, because it, it came originally, it was Proto-Indo-European. Yeah, you know? um, it migrated. Well, that's very that's very interesting because through the conference, we will have over fifteen countries involved with us describing their systems and how yeah. they came to it. Um, a little later on, we're going to be having uh, uh, Reverend Apu Agman, who's going to be speaking to Dina Cruz, who, who's seen as one of the mothers of Wicca of uh, the Philippines. I keep finding 
And it's mothers. It's almost always mothers. Except in America, where it's mostly a male base. Most of the other countries seem to it. But let me go ahead and jump up uh, history a little bit. 25 years ago, literally tonight, uh, yesterday, I made a, yesterday I was talking about, made a commitment to the parliament. But 25 years ago tonight, we actually met. Uh, was we it met, really? You were, because huh. you were fighting a battle. You were helping fight a battle. I was on the staff, and I was just running messages, uh, doing my grunt work for the Parliament of World Religion. Literally 25 years ago, we were talking about getting that ritual together for the, Sarda, uh, the Starhawk, uh, the Spiral, and the whole gathering of, uh, the, of it in Chicago. Right. Because this is right, on the right, anniversary right. of the Parliament. September 1st or the 7th. I'll be darned. I'd completely forgotten the date. Yeah, 1993. I was the naive chair, uh, first officer, whatever the hell the title was, of uh, the Covenant of the Goddess, and um, Mm -hmm. had been really insistent in contrast to the then uh, the the public uh, relations officers who sort of wanted it as their own personal fiefdom. I was like, absolutely not. This is incredibly important. We have to have as many pagans as possible. It has to be open. We need to go in solidarity with other pagan organizations. Mm -hmm. We need a strong presence. Um, And then when we got there, of course, there were, they had, it it was quite something that, that, that we were accepted and we were given opportunities to speak, but it was done with great reluctance. And, and among the difficulties that we faced was that even though they had accepted this ritual that I was um, co- co-doing with the uh, Earth Spirit community, um, the park, the city, refused to give us the permit for the uh, for the event in Grand Park. Yeah. Now, part of it, frankly, was the in part the fault of of the uh, public uh, affairs officer who had not gotten the. the permanent in a timely way but those things can all be overcome and and they were using it as a, a way of refusing us when in fact it was easily overcome but i ended up spending half the parliament fighting uh with the city to get the right uh to get the permit so that we could perform the ritual and in the end we we got the i had to bring in the aclu and together we fought the city and we got the permit and we were able to perform the ritual and there were almost 700 people there um and to this day, uh, there are still distorted rumors that we sacrificed an animal, which is bizarre yes, there because is. there were cameras. There were cameras filming the whole thing. But I think it was because uh, uh, one of the one of the pagan priests had a had an animal skin on his head. <laughs> he did absolutely. I remember yeah. that. Yeah, and but so- it was. Yeah, it was the first, 1993, and then and you were there, and other we were, there were about 50 pagans, and we kept coming back. Mm-hmm. We, you know, and it was expensive. I mean, you know, I've spent. Yeah. I, I wish I had the money now that I spent going to all these parliaments because you also had to travel around the world, and uh, it's expen- It was a real personal. I did not have a, an organization, you know, sponsoring me. It was a personal financial commitment that I made, but. I saw it as absolutely an essential stage, along with the the media and the courts, that it was the third leg on the stool of public acceptance, that it was absolutely essential that we be on that global stage with religious leaders, 
um, from all over the world so they would discover that we were not Satanists, that we weren't sacrificing babies, you know, that we needed allies and we needed, um, if not allies, we needed at least uh, understanding um, so that people could practice whatever uh, tradition they wanted to in peace and in safety. And so, yeah, so the parliament was one of the beachheads where um, I, I stood to battle for to use 25 years, yeah, since 1993. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I ended up in, in thanks to Angie Buchanan, who, mm-hmm. thanks to the Baha'i, uh, was uh, nominated to the board and elected to the board. And then she uh, brought on uh, another pagan. Mm-hmm. And and then they brought uh, they brought me on as the first Wiccan. And miraculously, I was the first pagan. I was elected vice chair of the parliament. Mm-hmm. And then a second time. And the second time, I uh, it coincided with the 2015 parliament. And I... Uh, used the opportunity uh, at great personal expense, but I used the opportunity to create the uh, inaugural Women's Assembly. And it really was the first time that Wiccans, Pagans, Indigenous people, really, although there had been an Indigenous Assembly, and they had received Mm -hmm. attention on the main stages, but, but not Indigenous women, really. And it was um, it was the first time that the goddess and Wiccans and pagans were on the main stages and the plenary sessions, because we'd always, although we were accepted and on the board and had programming, we were never present at the major sessions. We were never represented at the plenaries. We never, you know, we were never on the main stage, and uh, we were. For the women's assembly, we were the goddess was there, and um, and it it uh, was a terrible battle, and I and I did it virtually single handedly, um, mm-hmm. but I did it, Absolutely. and now if you build it, they will come, and now there are scores of women on the women's task force, and uh, there's another assembly, a plenary basically, um, and women's programming, and women's rituals, and sacred space and art and all the things that um, we paved the way for and the Declaration on the Dignity and Human Rights of Women, all of that um, precipitated an institutional change, which is rare, very rare. But it it actually, you know, you don't know, right? You do it once, you make history, but you don't know if you're going to change history. But 2018 is the proof that we are changing history. And little by little, little by little. Carol Christ will be there. Carol Christ will be there this year. Um, she she couldn't mm-hmm. come for 2015, but she's going to be there. Mara Keller, um, who uh, CIIS, who created the Goddess, one of the people who created the Goddess program there, um, was in 2015. She's coming back. Um, Vonda Nashiva is going to speak. Um, we're doing a legacy session as well as a usual assembly, plenary assembly. Um, so it's a big deal, and and it was a it was a Wiccan accomplishment. Um, that it's, it's it's one that I am in gratitude always for. I have um, I because it's very much paralleled, and you've always been one of the great leaders that uh, that have paralleled and has led really a lot of efforts uh, on, onto this. So people 
Um, I, I can't talk about this. When we talk about Global Wake Up and we talk about all the people that you've met, you, from all of all the individuals I know, have probably one of the best vantage points of actually being involved with the real world. Uh, and I feel like, and people always go, what do you mean by the real world? I think a lot of times we feel like we're involved in the world, in our, our local and linear lives. We live a lot of local and linear, and we're involved in the world. But, I mean, you are involved in the world in the sense of that as a Wiccan, as, as a woman, and as, as a person who is very dedicated to your art, I mean, you've, you've, you've talked to major newspapers. I mean, take on some Riley, which, uh, you know, which is a hmm. now kind of, uh, you know, often the Me Too guy who got pushed out finally um, <laughs> from the media. But you must mm-hmm. be very so, – so I want to bring you to today because we've heard okay. you know, that sort of thing. Because <laughs> to, today in your community, first of all, you're coming out with a great new book. I'm going to presume it's great because your other three were terrific. Um, and uh, that basically it's called Wicca Made Easy. Yeah, and a terrible so, title, but that's the name of the series. So what they do is they get leading figures in various aspects of spirituality, and, and then you write about it. Mm-hmm. What's amazing is that it's Hay House, right? So Hay House is Louise right. Hay. It's the big New Age publisher. And they mm-hmm. have discovered – I mean, I you know, there's been a hostility between the pagan and the New Age community for a long time and a lot of suspicion. Mm-hmm. But there's also there's there's also a – a lot of overlap, you know. There's a lot, a lot of overlap, and I have felt for many, many years that um, that the New Age audience is a natural uh, audience for contemporary Wicca and paganism, certainly shamanism, and they've now discovered mm-hmm. shamanism. Um, and I'm excited about doing this. The book is going to be followed by an online class uh, that I'm supposed to be preparing, and that I haven't had time to do properly because my beloved other just had knee replacement surgery and we just moved so it's been a bit mad but we're going to do this online class so the book is out in november mm-hmm. the, the online class will be out in uh this spring it's a mm-hmm. challenge and a and a fast it's a fascinating challenge to return to beginner's mind but it's also really Timely. It's really gorgeous because I really have. I've long believed, and that's why I was public, that 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 Wicca, that the the truth of Wicca beyond the cultural specific, right? The universal truth of Wicca, the practices and the and the experiences that one has because of the use of the practices and the wisdom that is derived from those experiences essential wisdom at this particular moment i believe that's one reason that there is this resurgence that's occurring right a home for women the return of the divine feminine a spiritual practice as opposed to a dogmatic belief system and the wisdom of mother earth right embodied divinity um without which we won't survive right we will not survive. The, the laws of nature are spiritual laws. And so in, in, I, I have not fully ventured into that, the fullness of that wisdom in this book, but I laid the groundwork for it. And it's the next, you know, you know, because we've talked about this before, but it's, it's the wisdom of the last 10, 12 years when I basically left the community in 
you know, except for the, you know, the ongoing work with the parliament and stuff like the advocacy work, but where I went on this adventure. And I come back more convinced than ever that Wicca is not about the past, it's about the future. It's about, it's a wisdom tradition that has the potential and the power to transform um, human culture, religious culture, global culture at a critical moment when, when our survival depends on it. And I know that's an outrageous thing to say, no, um, but I hope, I hope <laughs> it's a prophetic thing, um, and mm-hmm. I, believe it because, I, I believe it because I know it to be true from my own experience um, and from what I was shown, that I mean, the, mother, the, the green man led me to the mother and the mother spoke, and what she said was simple and clear. And it was, you know, it was through the practices that I was able to remove the blindfold and see what she showed me and take the garbage out of my ears and hear what she said. And it's all around us. It's also within us. And it is not complicated. There is a cosmic blueprint. You know? It's embodied by the universe. It's embodied by the earth. It's embodied in a microcosmic way by us because we too are part of nature. And the laws of nature are, in fact, spiritual laws. And everything lives according to those laws, except us, because we have been so infatuated with our pseudo-intellects. And we've had these bizarre um, spiritual dogmas that have told us that the divine is elsewhere, right? That it's abstract and transcendent and removed, that we have gone a bit, we've gone mad. Um, but the path back home. Is right here, right here. It's all around us. All we need to do is take off the blindfold. And to me, it's the, the practices that enable us to do that. And I, you know, the, I I think, you know, I also think there are one million public Wiccans now in the United States. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's it more than is. there are Buddhists. There, that's more than there are Buddhists. That's almost as many Jews. That's more than there are Muslims. I mean, that's and that's public. That's public. So imagine, right? That they're at least probably it's probably three to one, four to one who aren't public. Um, well, and also, so let me take this a little bit further. So let me, as everyone knows, I'm a data-driven human being, hmm. um, and and I'm a big believer in the internet and cyber ministry. Uh, for me, it, that has been really my calling, and it's been very fortunate. And I see something that's emerging. I almost call it, so I see an emerging movement, and, I, I'm, I'm, and I'm glad to share that you're here, because one of the things that inspired me to do the Global Wicca Summit that we talked about for so long, well, one is because uh, that several of the priests are actually going to do a presentation at the Parliament. Is you know, is Wicca a global religion? Are we ready yes. to take our stand? Are we ready to take our stand as a global religion? Are we really ready to take on that responsibility? You know, and kind of say, and our advocacy for it. But here's the thing it is. So this week has been Sephora. The makeup company is announced they're going to make a witch starter kit. Really? And people have had all sorts of, absolutely, 800,000 copies of it, it looks like. For $42, yes. A tarot deck, smudge kit, nine cents. If you haven't heard about this, this is like one of the big, big controversies because I'm very much a whole media. And what they're making a bet on is that they're making a commercial bet 
that there are women who are seeing it. I've seen it with Felisa Malay, and I've seen it amongst the zier young, younger, young, late, late millennials, early Z, women yeah. especially, who have now adapted the word witch as a secular empowerment, very similar to the way that it did in your generation. And I have not seen this since your generation because it is a social justice claim. It's an empowerment claim in this age of oppressive, you know, dealing with the male of oppressive media and the Me Too movement. I'm seeing a lot of young women seeing flame, and I think your book is at perfect timing. And they are more in your model than I've ever seen any group before. It's really Can fascinating. You, you know, the, 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 the Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary that was on CNN, which was mm-hmm. just marvelous. I mean, you know, I, she was uh, a role model for me because um, she was a, a major women's rights lawyer uh, in New York, actually, with the ACLU um, when I was in law school. And they, so I was dying to see this documentary. And it starts off the first thing you hear a voiceover. It says, She's a witch, first thing. <laughs> That's the first castigation of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And, of course, you know, the Russian trolls with uh, Hillary, you know, that, that she was a witch. She's a witch. Well, you know, look out, boys. That's right. I mean, 20 years ago, that was my that, – that, that was the big media push that I was doing with, with – uh, mm-hmm. Even with Bill O'Reilly, and I'm, I'm, what goes around comes around, right? The, you know, the the old is new again. Um, mm-hmm. And I've seen, yes, I, I didn't know about Sephora, but I've seen this in in Vogue and a lot of, and even Hay House's interest that only now it's bigger, right? Which is why you have Sephora and why you have Hay House and why you have, um, you know, big media conglomerates. When I did, you know, did Book of Shadows. 20 years ago, yeah, damn right, that's right, it's 20 years, it's the 20th anniversary, oh, by the way, we're putting out a, a special 20th anniversary edition of Book of Shadows, and when I first put it out, uh, the, the feature editor at Vogue wanted to do uh, an article, and, and uh, Anna Winter said, there'll be no witchcraft in Vogue, well, they, there just was, you know, it only took 20 years, right, <laughs> but there is, and it, it is entirely, I mean, you know, that's what, the, that, that, to, the, one of the reasons that I embrace the word witch, I mean, aside from the fact that I, you know, I'm not changing my religion because I was persecuted by a bunch of patriarchal lunatics, right, 500 years ago. Um, but it was a claim uh, of women's power. It can, the, the witch is the figure onto which patriarchy projected its fears of women and their sexuality and their power and their role as, as shamans and sibyls and priestesses and midwives and wise women and leaders. And so to embrace that word, to take it on, to wear it, to publicly declare it, um, and to refuse to allow um, the media or the courts or my clients or the parliament, right, to project, mm-hmm. to continue to protect its, uh, its misogyny um, was precisely that. It was a reclaiming of women's power. And if, in fact, you know, this is a moment of incredible um, awakening with the Me Too movement and everything else, um, if women are embracing it, then um, there will be a radical shift. We, you will see... 
um, tremate, tremate, le streghe son tornate. That's the Italian, the, the feminist movement in the 1970s uh, uh, in uh, Italy. The women would go through the streets chanting that tremate, tremate, le streghe son tornate means tremble, tremble, the witches are returning. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, mm-hmm. So in my so so in my career, which really started in '93, a little bit before by doing radio and media, and my love of media, and which has continued, has shown me that one of the things that has grown is that you were very much involved in the '90s, and then for a little while, people have said, "Oh, Wicca lost its way in the 2000s." You know, the early part of the 2010s, and as you mentioned, a lot of people pulled away. Now, a lot of the younger women are coming into the community. How can they find, and this is something that is, how can they find their way to, to these elders, to these mothers? Now, there's one great app out there, uh, Divine, uh, Divine Feminine App, downloaded here right. found by Karen Lee Moon, which helps yep. women find groups. It's an excellent app. I want you to know all about it. Just go ahead and you know, go into your favorite uh, app store. Yep. I'm one of her fire tenders and have been supporting her from the very beginning. I think it's incredibly valuable. I'm thrilled. I mean, she's made, again, a lot of the, 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 the leaders, the women who are out there uh, leading the way make tremendous personal sacrifices about which they, they, they do not uh, make a big fuss. But she's made tremendous personal sacrifices to create this thing, and, it, and it's growing it's growing like crazy. It's incredibly beautiful, and it's really valuable. And for you to say that, because this is your area of expertise, so um, you know no, whereof you yeah. speak. So, yeah, so that would be a good one. I know there's a few other things out there, but I still find that people find how can they find an expression? I guess they keep telling – so the word that I keep hearing, I don't completely understand it because it's a younger person's phrase. But they're looking, looking to – and as they phrase it, how do they phrase it? They want to express Wicca more in their lives. They want to express the goddess more into their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it's for me as a male. Let me be honest with a male. For me, what do you mean express it? For me, that sounds like a performance. But they're talking about something, and they go, no, no, no. For, for them, expression means how does their life live in a way that their actions match their beliefs, their deeds match their belief, I believe, is what they're trying to say. Yeah. And... Um, and and being so you know be kind of being just an extrovert of myself, of just going out there and just saying, well, get everybody to talk. I try to get people to talk, mm-hmm. and I tell people I don't have a lot of answers, but I can point you at people who do. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really where I feel like a lot of ways. I, I feel like a traffic cop a lot of times, which I really appreciate. Um, <laughs> but how do um, how do how do how do young women today besides getting your great books and Following you on Facebook is one way because you're on Facebook. Yes, and go to my go uh, to my go to my web. I'm so bad at all this. Go to my web page and sign up for my e list because we're doing a, you know all of a sudden I'm back. So all right, I'm into the right. 21st century. So we're doing it. I, by the way, I should tell you we're doing a um, 20. I can't believe it. 2020. I'm doing a, a new witch's tarot. And we're journeying. I'm. Yeah, I'm doing it with a a hedge witch from Dartmoor who's a beautiful watercolorist artist, and we're journeying for every card, and it has been the most mind-blowing experience already. 
So, okay, so what do they do? Listen, it's a different generation, so I, Mm -hmm. you know, they're going to have a different path. When I began to to travel it, it was hidden, and it was... um, it was arcane, it was hidden, it was wrapped in some of the myths of origin, it was profoundly magical in part because it was hidden. Uh, there were no books to speak of, you know, it was completely oral. But what I, and now there are too many books, you know. Um, but I would, I would say, practice, that the, the biggest problem with a lot of what I've seen over the years. And one reason, you know, I've always, I, you know, I come into the community as an advocate, on behalf of the community as an advocate, but I, you know, I also, then I, then I leave because, I, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a priestess warrior, you know, so I need, I need my mystic time alone to go on my, mm-hmm. my adventures. But part of it also is that there's a superficiality of course, and this mm-hmm. is the concern right, with Sephora and things of this sort, that, that there's a commercialism, right? Um, that, that people uh, go to YouTube, watch a couple of videos, um, call themselves a witch, put on a lot of black eye makeup, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, and act out, uh, pee in a bottle, you know, and put a curse on their ex-boyfriend and think they're being a witch. Um, and that's not what it's about at all. Uh, so, um, so advice yeah, one: you, you you need good teachers, um, and that's one reason I agreed to do the online class. Although, you know, I'd rather be in person with people, but you, there's a limit to how many people you can teach in person. So, all right, this is a great experiment. It's, it has its limitations, but at least it's a starting point. People need good practice. They need good teachers to give them the fundamental practices. If you work it, it will work. You need to practice. So you need to learn how to cast a circle. You need to know how to work with the four directions. Not just like, you know, light a, you know, light a candle, inscribe your name on it and light a candle and make a wish and then blow it out. You have to, you have to discover how to drop the barrier of consciousness between interior and exterior and understand how working and honoring each of the four directions is actually a very active meditation in which that barrier drops and you come into communion, profound communion, with each of the elements, with the plants and with the animals of the planet. And the connections are made at a very profound and and visceral level um, that begin to transform who you are and you begin to discover who you are, where you are, and why you're here. You have to practice. You need to cast a circle every week. Even if you don't do it well, you need to do it. If you can't do it every week, you need to do it at least twice a month, working with the lunar, especially if you're a woman, and work with the lunar phases so that your body can begin to find its rhythm with the rhythms of the moon. You have to work with seasonal sabbats so that you're your psyche, your body, your soul, your spirit, your mind starts to come into harmony with the rhythms of the planet, with the earth, where you're living. When you start to come into harmony, you change. I mean, the first thing that magic changes is you. But magic is not manipulative, right? It's not, it's not in external objects. It's not um, a supernatural 
mechanistic methodology for manipulating the universe at all. Magic is what happens when you are in communion with the divine, and that's what the practices are about. They are about bringing you, altering your consciousness through breath, through grounding, casting a circle. The minute you cast a circle, you're coming into communion with the divine feminine because of the form, the nature of the energy and how it moves. It's a feminine form. The minute you do that, the divine feminine is manifesting, the goddess is manifesting, and things start to happen. So you have to practice. You have to practice with regularity, and you have to practice with consistency, and you have to practice in harmony with nature, in harmony with the moon, in harmony with the earth, working with the elements, working with the animals in your life. Um, you need a good teacher uh, to help you do that. You need to write and keep track. But the practices themselves work if you work them and the magic begins to manifest as you work the practices and come into contact communion with the divine that's inside of you and that's embodied in the world around you it happens but you have to practice for it to happen you can't pretend you can't play dress up you you can't watch the craft and you know that's 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 uh, faux witchcraft. Um, to be mm-hmm. a witch is to be a witch is to be a wise one. To be a wise one is is to practice shamanism. To practice shamanism is to come into communion with the sacred. To learn how to alter consciousness. To experience realms of spirit. To work with guides. They're guides and they're teachers, and they'll appear to you, like the Libyan Sibyl appeared to me. Um, and I have, one, I have a wonderful story, which I don't know whether we have time for, but I, we have I all the time should, in the world. Absolutely, go ahead. If I you should. Like to, I we should. We have all. Yeah. So I'll tell you. I mean, if you practice, and what what are you practicing? You're practicing the means by which to take off the blindfold tied on by history and by habit to see the sacred, so that you're able to see it as the living presence that it is. And to pay attention, that's, to, that's my definition of a witch. It's somebody who is paying attention to the, the sacred. And that's not an easy thing to do because everything about the culture, the world in which we live, the demands of our daily lives, right, is the opposite. You've got to go to work. You have a grouchy boyfriend. You know, your dog ate your best shoes. You have bills to pay. Uh, turn on the news. You know, you want to shoot yourself. Um, it's not easy. We are largely cut off from the natural world. We don't live in context. We live out of context. Um, and that's why the practices are so important because they're the means by which we reconnect. We return to uh, to meaning. We return to context. We return to connection. Um, so, uh, a few years ago, I was really uh, fortunate uh, to be part of uh, a moment when uh, the Parliament Board was honored uh, with induction uh, into the Martin Luther King Collegium of uh, Clergy and Scholars. So I was inducted, uh, and it was amazing. And I was there with the board, but I was alone. I had no family. I have no children. I'm divorced. Um, I was alone. Uh, my parents have passed. I don't have brothers or sisters. Um, 
And I didn't have a member of my community in Atlanta or, you know, somebody close that I could ask to be there. Um, And so I was up on that stage and I was marveling, you know, the circumstances that had brought me there. And I felt that it was, I was there more by force of circumstance than than because I had done anything to earn it, you know? Um, I mean, yes, okay, the things I'd done that got, you know, that, so I was on the board and the parliament and I'd fought for the pagan community and the wicked community and et cetera. But still, um, I really felt more that it was an honor that was meant to be an inspiration, right? So the whole, and I felt lonely. I felt sad, you know, that I was there at this profound moment, probably one of the most meaningful honors of my life, and I was alone. Um, I thought about my parents, who really deserved it, really, truly deserved the, those honors. And, I, and, okay, so the whole thing ends, and um, I have a couple of hours before I have to get to the Atlanta airport to fly back to New York, and I'm like, what do I do? Well, I did what I always do. I asked where the nearest art museum was, and I dragged my luggage, and off I went on the train, and I get there, and I, and I'm walking through this museum. I have no idea where anything is. And I just feel myself being sort of pulled. And I cross a kind of bridge over an atrium to a hallway on the opposite side of this building. And I feel this light and this this incredible presence. And I just turn right. And at the end of the hallway was the Libyan Sybil. How is that possible? You know, this is a statue. It's at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It's made of marble. It's impossible. What is it doing in Atlanta in this art museum? And I looked. It was slightly smaller than the one in New York. And I approached it. I, I was. It was like I was in an altered state from the moment I, I saw it again. And you know, uh, just everything luminous and bright. And I approached it, and I realized it was the smaller version. It was the artist's version that he did before he did the master copy that was in the Met. So there she was at one of the the loneliest and yet most important sort of profound moments of my life. And there she was. And I realized that... I needed to know more about her, you know, like I needed to know I had not I had not thought of her in a long time. It's like why did she appear? Why did she appear now? Why did she appear here? Why was I led to her? And I went and I did research because when I had first seen her there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing and they had no information for me at the museum years and years ago. But now there was information and I discovered that the the sculptor had sculpted her, American, a lawyer who had left the practice of law behind to become a sculptor in Rome, my favorite city. Mm-hmm. So much of my magic, you know, my name, Aradia, so much of my own magic is there. And he had sculpted her after a visit from Harriet Beecher Stowe, the great feminist, the great advocate for oh. women, right? who told him about meeting the extraordinary um, um, 
advocate for um uh oh my god i'm having uh, this is so funny i'm so exhausted um the, the 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 runaway slave oh my god isn't this amazing that i can't think of her name and of course the minute we hang up i will and it's such a strange thing to not be able to think of well this is over exhaustion it'll come to me in two seconds she had heard her speaking um and advocating for the abolition of slavery and um and she told him about about this meeting with this extraordinary woman and this was his homage to her um so it was full circle, you know, to to have had um, this engagement um, by an image of a priestess of Isis, a priestess of the goddess, right, who had been inspired more than a hundred years before the the web of all these connections Um, and at that moment I realized that the honor I'd received wasn't about what I'd accomplished but what I truly that I my instinct that it was about what was to come next was right and it was the inspiration it was part of the inspiration that I had then to to do the women's assembly and to fight like hell um, and to fight the board of the, and the the chair of the parliament and you know and and to take it on myself when I had absolutely no support from anyone else just the one or two members of the board um, to create that um, for women all over the world and for uh, women who called themselves witches right? um, and to earn the honor to earn the honor and it, she was as she had. When she pointed me to uh, the to the the women in the back of the magical child um, in 1980 1981, um, she was the reason that I that I took that path, and so she appeared again, and she was the reason that I took um, the path again um, to 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 follow the path of Wicca. To, to, to be a witch, to embrace the word, to say it proudly, to say it publicly, to confront the culture with its um, with its patriarchal values and its fear of women, to make it face how it projects those fears onto women, you know, and has damaged them and constrained them and denied them, um, and in so doing, you know, has destroyed, you know the full potential of our humanity and neglected um, a large uh, and profoundly important part of our divinity. Um, So, um, yeah. Uh, So that's magic, you know. But you have to... um, You have to... um, Practice. You have to practice. You can't pretend... Um, you have to practice. And if you do, um, your heart opens and the magic comes. You know, the magic comes to you, the divine comes to you, and it leads you. It leads you in a dance. And so that's what I would say to the young women that, you know, if they will practice, um, they, they, they will open their minds and they'll open their hearts and, um, 
the goddess or the god, whatever, the, the genius lochi, the, the spirit will come to them that will dance with them, that will guide them, that will um, carry them forward into a world that's really full of magic. Um, and, you know, the, and the first thing that the magic will change will be them. And having changed, they will then, you know, they will then uh, be able to change the world. And that's what a witch does. You know, witches are healers. They're prophetesses. They're sibyls. They're seers. Um, and um, they're leaders of the way forward. I think that's becoming um, increasingly now, we're seeing that increasingly. So yeah. one last thought. So now you've gone through this. Do you see, so project yourself forward a little bit. I always ask this for people. But as I, and, and first of all, let me go ahead and say, before I ask uh, this last question, I want to say personally and from our, uh, from our members is that I'm in deep gratitude of what you've done. I mean, this hour show, this is what you've done, just sharing yourself with us is that does not even cross where in a little bit of what you've actually accomplished and your humility and, and, and seeing what you've done as more as, as just part of your life um, because it's so, it would be so easy to boast and brag. And you don't do that. You actually use it as profound lessons, not only for yourself, but for the people around you. And I'm in deep gratitude and people appreciate that. And your writings, and I found one of the things that, let me go ahead and say, if anyone's looking for books, everybody's always talking about 101 books. But the books you wrote weren't 101 books. They were about a real experiences, about real life and how it really works. And I think that was one of the first breaths I saw. Uh, the Book of Shadows was, it, was, it, wasn't, oh, it wasn't a recipe book. It really wasn't. It was about the experiences, how to metabolize them. And I really appreciate that is something that you bring, not just, it's easy to give us the recipes. It's easy to to say, you know, do this and do the schedule. I mean, as a mechanicistic person, that's very easy to do. But I think I really appreciate the fact that you've done it through example. You've really led this life that's absolutely been amazing. To, to the outsider, has been amazing, Even no matter how much it may have been clouds of dirt for you. <laughs> so I really want to thank you for that. Huh? Um, Thank you. And as you said it, I remembered it was Sojourner Truth. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was Sojourner Truth. That was the, mm-hmm. the the runaway slave who began preaching around the country for the liberation yes. of women and of uh, slaves. And um, and that's you know that that yeah. Well, that's our calling. I mean, it mm-hmm. magic is not mechanical. You know, I, the the old notions of magic were that that it was, um, you know, the the incantation, the um, formula, the formula, um, right. done at a certain time with key ingredients, all very mechanical, um, and that's not what magic is. Magic is not. Um, uh, about mechanical manipulation of the universe, especially not for ego gratification, right? It's it's about communion with the divine. It's about um, the opening of the the heart and the mind um, to the truth, the the truth. Thank you, Sojourner. The truth of who we are and where we are and why we're here and. Um, 
what I do know is that the, if you work it, it will work, that the practices work. And, that you know, there are times when, I mean, I, I stopped practicing for a long time because I felt that if I couldn't see the magic in the world without the practices, the world wouldn't see the magic. In, you know, that people wouldn't see it if they had to practice. And I, I, I think... I think, you know, I think that's true. I think I, I'm not sure how to fully articulate it yet, but ultimately, and, and it may be that it is simply sufficient for people to simply go and spend time in nature. And they don't have to drum, and they don't have to chant, and they don't have to honor the four directions, and, you know, they don't have to ritualize, and they don't, you know, they just have to go to nature. Um, and they will see and learn everything that they need to um, to come into the presence of divinity. Uh, but that may be less likely to happen than people uh, going into circles um, or young women embracing the word witch. Um, so, I mean, that is a, a part of it is that whatever... I really believe that the divine comes and taps us all on the shoulder. You know, It whispers to us in our ear. It speaks to us in our dreams. Um, it 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 sends us signs. It expresses itself in synchronicities. Most people don't pay attention. I did, um, and that's why. And and the purpose of telling my stories is to encourage people to pay attention to the signs and the synchronicities and the messages and the whispers that are coming to them in the forms that will speak to them. Um, because if you'll pay attention, your life will be filled with magic. Um, and that is the universal one uh, one of the great universal wisdoms of Wicca, um, and we're really blessed that uh, that it that it's had this resurgence. You know, it really it was an extraordinary thing that a uh, hundred years ago that uh, all the that those British that avant garde British group went looking for uh, a different way to experience the divine whether it was, you know, the post-First World War or the, the shock of modern industrial capitalism and the devastation to the land and to people and whatever it was that prompted them, you know, whether it was Mother Earth whispering in their ears, you know, and the ancestors calling to them that they went looking. And, he, you know, and Margaret Murray, what a fascinating thing. You know, she was... Oxford educated, and it was Oxford that published her book on the witch cult of Europe. And even though she wasn't mm-hmm. quite exactly right, you know, in her idea that it was a formalized religion throughout Europe and blah, 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 beneath the surface of that interpretation, she was right. You know, there was a, there was a pre-Christian indigenous shamanic tradition with a horn god and, and other expressions of the divine masculine and, and a goddess, goddesses and spirits of place and and all the remnants were there in 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 uh, western folk traditions that managed to survive you know and seasonal holidays and stuff that 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 clung on despite the church and the persecutions and it's they 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 felt it they felt themselves summoned and they answered and i truly believe that you know that what we've been doing for forty years you know has been op- to open that portal and to forge the path. I had a student in Italy 
we were climbing up this mountain pass, and she said to me, what does it mean to be a leader, you know, to be a, a leader? And it was like somebody was posing that question to me really for the first time. And I, I, I thought to myself, it's a lot of aggravation, but that's not the answer she wants. So I looked down at mm-hmm. what, I was, what I was doing, um, and I, I realized I was, I was, what I was doing was exactly what it means to be a leader. I was at the head. There were a few people in front of us, some students in front of us on the path, and a few students, number of students, more students behind us. And the students in front of us had been going around or stepping over the branches that were blocking the path. But completely unconsciously, with each branch that we came to, I was clearing the path. I would lift the branch and put it aside, lift the branch and put it aside, so that the people behind me were able to move more easily down the path. That's what that's what it's been the last 40 years, to clear the path. It's a lot of work, yeah. You know? um, and there are people in front of you, and they're not doing it. Well, whatever they're doing, they're doing something else. But they're not clearing the path. They're not clearing the way. Whether the people behind you notice that you've done it, it's nice when they do. It's good to be appreciated, especially if somebody brings you a drink of water or some food or says, can I help? You know, can I do it for a while? That would be a good thing. Um, But that's what it means. That's what we've been doing for 40 years, right? Um, and there were people who did it before us. Not not that many, but there were. There, you know, there were a handful of very brave souls, a few hundred people. Um, and then there were those of us who were willing to be public. Yeah. So we opened. The, we yeah. cleared a path. And um, and now, you know, there's witchcraft in vogue, and there's Sephora, and there's you know Hay House doing online classes with me. Okay. Um, which opens the way for yet more people. If you if you work it, it will work. That's what it is. You don't have to be Wiccan to benefit from Wiccan practices. The first thing that magic changes is you. And when you change, you change the world around you. And I know that sounds a little new age, but that's what I... There is, there is common ground. There's common ground. That's why I like interfaith work. You know, that find that that carving out of common ground. We have a lot of work to do. World's in great crisis. One reason I have put my through, myself through the incredible insanity of of packing up my house and moving at the at, you know, at the worst possible time. Okay, well, I found the right place. The place that I've moved to is the third highest spot on Long Island. <laughs> I feel like an animal, you know, going to high ground. My house that I'm about to sell is on the water, and I've been there 18 years. And the water is much higher now than it was when I bought it 18 years ago. The tides are higher. I sat on the porch. It's one of the most beautiful places in the world, and I watched the mm-hmm. ospreys that are about to leave now to make their migration down south, and I watched the cranes, and I watched the water. The high, I watched the tide flowing in, and I see the waters are rising. The waters are rising. The waters are rising. And um, so is the temperatures. It's changing. And I don't know that we're going to be able to stop it. 
but I do believe that one reason, um, beyond the empowerment of young women, there's a reason for their empowerment, right? It's not just about them. Absolutely. It's about it, they are children of the goddess. They are children of Mother Earth. They have a job to do. They have to discover and remember who they are and where they are and why they're here. And we need to do it really fast because we've done tremendous damage and we have to heal. We have to fix what we've broken. I don't know that we can do it in time, but I know that we have to try. Um, and I know also that the wisdom that we are part of, this ancient wisdom of our of our ancestors, you know, to be redundant, mm-hmm. to, um, they knew that they were part of this web of life. They understood that the laws of nature were spiritual principles. They knew how to live in harmony and in, and in balance with Mother Earth. They knew that the Earth embodied divinity and was to be revered and treated with respect and learned from and worked in harmony and balance with. And we have to rediscover that um, because the planet, um, yeah, the planet will survive, but we're taking half the species of the of the plants and animals with us, and we have no right to do that. And we're doing tremendous damage. So um, there's very little time left. I absolutely understand that because um, myself, as people know, I actually became a a strange creature a couple of years ago because I was crazy, but I've become a worm farmer, a soil builder. Um, Because of the profound acts, and you're talking about the profound acts of nature, I've, it's it's altered me, and I'm I I too am as people know I've been returning. So let me offer this last, and I thank you for spending extra time with us. I really appreciate that, um, I, and our audience has done that. I've, I've been looking at that. Um, so one of the things that has changed in this world since you began, and I think this is something I think uh, you're, and I know I know that you wrestle with it. But your ability, to, your voice is, is tremendous. Tonight you're going to be picked up in 20, 30 countries. Um, I don't, you know, we're going to be talking, and I know that within like 48 hours, you know, people in 20, 30 countries are going to hear what we had to say tonight to lesser or greater degrees. And so all your life your voice has been amplified. One thing that I see here in your message is every time you turn around, your voice is getting amplified. It's getting to be more profound. Do you anticipate? or So where do you think you're – where do you see – or do you have any feelings of where the goddess is taking you next? Um, or is it just a great mystery for you too? Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was. Yeah, I mean, you know, magic is. You know, there are times it's like a doorknob. There's nothing, and then you know, there are times that it's like extraordinary. So, I mean, I I think I told you the story. I was talking to a friend, and then I was talking to my agent, and they said uh, same day, and they said, uh, so what? Public, you know, now that you're you're ready to come back to writing, and you're going to write this book about the the Green Man and the and the first principles, um, just this idea of you know the principles you know, that the laws of nature. Are, spiritual mm-hmm. laws and you, you know, and you're going to write another mm-hmm. memoir about your adventure and what you learned and you know so who do you want as your publisher and I said Hay House and the next morning I got an email from Hay House asking me to do this little book which initially I thought that's not the book I have to do this big book but it was exactly the right book so I I you know the I have whenever the universe 
gives me a task, I say yes, no matter how big or how small, no matter how much it costs me or how how much it offers me. You know, I say yes. So we're going to do the the book. We're going to do the online class. I'm trying to get myself organized. I've got a virtual assistant. I've got a real assistant. You know, Hay House is a marketing monster. I am hoping that that tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people will find the wisdom, will will hear the 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 will learn the practices, will find it useful, will make use of it and will unlock the magic within themselves and will discover the magic of living in on a holy planet. I will do the witch's tarot, which I'm really psyched about to to I mean oracles have always been a huge part of my journey, you know, and so to create one is an incredible experience for me. I'm thrilled to pieces. So that and then I hope, you know, in the process of all of this, um, probably a small book on divination as a means of engaging in dialogue with the divine and how you do that. Because mm-hmm. that to me is everything, that there is a guidance system that's always available to us uh, that people ne- need to know how to use so that they can be adventurous and be brave and be courageous and go out there. Um, most of all, I want to do the Green Man book and I want to I want to do the principles and I want to I want to teach the practices as the means of experiencing wisdom of the earth. As you said, you asked that question, how do people bring their lives into rhythm into so that their lives are embodying their values, that their lives are embodying their witchcraft, that they are uh, living their spirituality, they're walking their talk. Um, and learning from the earth and learning how to live with the earth is one way to do that. We're constantly living with contradictions, you know. I have lights on in the house right now, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I'm not living off the grid, um, but most of us can't live off the grid, but we can um, make our footprint as small as possible, and there are countless things we can do to to give back in exchange for what we're given. And sometimes you and I have to talk about the earthworms and making soil because one of the things I see out here is they're growing. I'm surrounded by sod farms, and they keep taking up the topsoil, and I'm like, this is madness, complete madness, that they're destroying, um, you know, potent soil that can grow food to to create golf courses and suburban homes, but this is another conversation for another time. You, you find your way. So what do I see for the future? I see um, I'm I'm going to try to teach as many people as I can how to practice. Um, and um, in the keen certainty that you don't have to be Wiccan to benefit from the practices. Um, and the deep conviction that um, that the wisdom that's derived is a universal wisdom because we're all children of Mother Earth. Um, and I hope I have enough time to do a good job. Yeah. I want to speak more. Um, and the, the, the Internet affords a means of reaching people so that I don't have to travel all over the world, which is good because, you know, because it, it 
it, it does a lot of damage when you get on an airplane. Um, mm-hmm. So the idea of using the Internet to reach people, I have to learn how to do that. I have to learn how to master that microphone, that magnification of voice, um, and I need help doing it. Um, but, yeah, I ground my – I people who know me know that um, my problem is not too much ego. It's It's not having enough. But I ground – I ground my demons into dust, my demons of self-doubt for that 10-year period. Um, I sacrificed all of that, and um, and now I just want to work. You know, When you reach a certain age, you realize that you don't have a lot of time, so I want to use it well. And I want to help as many people as I possibly can um, discover um, how to unlock the magic. How to awaken? That's really the, that's the subtitle. How to awaken the magic within, and the way that you do that is by all these methods of um, coming into communion with the divine that's part of you and that is that embraces you, that is the world in which you live. Um, and I think when we set that right, um, things will begin to change. You know, we'll find the resources and the wisdom and the political will and uh, the means um, by which to fix the things that we've broken. I, that is, that's beautiful. That, uh, that is beautiful. Um, and, I, I, and, and people, I hope that you have plenty of time. I myself have set myself for the next 25 years on our task. There you go. There uh, we go. And um, so, I, I come, so it comes from the idea that we overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can do in a decade. I think your life in twenty five, and twenty five years is we don't know what most of us can accomplish, and I guess this is for night because because we went from so and and I really appreciate you sharing this with me because because as you've said we've gone from just having a microphone where we're very dependent on mainstream media to tell our message back in nineteen ninety three to today we're taking it into our own hands and I really appreciate you joined us for our hands so Wicked Made Easy. Awaken the divine within. Is that is that right? Yeah, awaken the divine magic within. Yep. Out in November. Yep. Out in November. Hey, House, it's available in pre-sale now. Amazing on Amazon. It's so good to be back in print. And uh, absolutely. Yeah, and it's lovely. I've gotten such kind um, endorsements from from as an example of how this is the moment. Uh, for this universal expansion from Christine, uh, Christiane Northrup, um, from Jean Bolin, from Mirabai Star. Um, yeah, I mean, this is our time. We are holding, uh, we've been, for whatever reason that we were drawn to the path, you know, originally, it is... Um, it is a path of purpose, and this is the time for us to fulfill that purpose. So I invite people to it. It's an extraordinary, magical, amazing, challenging, very challenging, because, you know, when your heart opens and the, and the scales fall from your eyes, you are forced to grieve. You feel the pain of the world. You suffer with it. Um, but that's the wounded shaman. You know, you have to be wounded to, to know how to heal, to heal the world, and that's the way of the path, and you will find 
um, everything you need within and everything you need all around you. And I invite you to the journey. It's a good one. And I, I'm very happy that you gave me the chance to go on and on and on, as I always do. <laughs> and um, I am I am looking forward to listening to the other guests that you have on the show. Send me the link to you know where this is so people can listen to it afterwards so I can keep sending it out to folks. And, Absolutely. Um, and I look forward to seeing you at the Parliament where um, mm-hmm. I'll be speaking and and um and I look forward uh to a, a long and healthy future with with you with which school with all the folks out there that I have yet to meet with all those worms that you're cultivating <laughs> and uh absolutely um and um and as we know and and, and I, I I thank you um and I'm hopefully we'll have you back on before your book comes on to speak more in depth about your book but today, I think you've left us with a really deep message of of, of 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 guidance. I think this has been very guiding, and I and people that do who do it over the next couple of months. Um, I hope that they can carry away value. I think that you've offered us a great deal of value. Um, Thank you. Um, that sort of thing. And so, uh, sign up for her email list because you know that's the way mm-hmm. we talk today. I, you know me; I'm very profound into cyber ministry. This is our I tested it. Phyllis Crod, she has a Facebook page. Are you on Instagram yet? Uh, I think so. I, if I'm not, <laughs> I will be. <laughs> With lots of pictures of my dog. I don't know. I mean, you know, right. I Yeah, uh, I'll get it's, there. It's, it's, I'm a yeah, writer. I'm right now I'm learning it. Right. Well, actually, I'm, 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 I'm caught in the same pattern. I'm actually writing the first – I've edited books before. Uh, my first thing I ever did was Your Voice Out of the Primal World Religion. I've done a couple of things. But I'm actually in the middle of writing an actual book called Cyber Ministry. It's really about the things that we've done. Yeah, Brilliant. absolutely. It's, it's been, yeah, it's been, I have to say, I'm impressed with people who can write because it's it's tough. It's hard. Um, yes, it is. It's easy, it's, it's easy for me to do, it's easier to practice than to explain sometimes. And you've done that with your family. Um, so, with that, uh, I want to thank you, and uh, we're hoping thank that you we're going to hear And thank you, and <laughs> blessings. Um, so, Phyllis Pratt, thank you. You've, you've heard from her tonight at the Global Wicked Summit, and uh, and uh, we're going to continue and uh, with blessings. And uh, you, again, find her out on Facebook. You can find out her uh, on um, her website. You have a website. That's what I was going to think. That's yep. Is. You have a website. What is that website? That's what I was thinking. It, yep. It's oh, it's a beautiful website. We redesigned it. It's so cool yes. and modern. <laughs> it's phyllisquirot.com. So it's p h y l l i s last name curot c u r o t t dot com. And just and you can join and learn and uh, and express yourself and 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 it's kind of experience what she's offering and to, to, to learn. I think this is going to be profound. Um, Blessing Phyllis. Thank you for being on with us this evening. Thank you. Dear. Um, and thanks to everybody who's been listening. Absolutely. And uh, out to the world, share this link and we're going to be uh, continuing on. Uh, now with uh, Jason Menke, he's going to do a history of Wicca and uh, he's, and as you know, it's amazing. It's his regular show, so we're going to continue on. And I want to thank everyone for patience. 
But okay, to answer a question that came in, Dana Cruz, yes, we are in Second Life. We are in Second Life. The Global Wicked Summit is actually broadcasting and, and, and Second Life, and we might be into Altverse for those who are geeky. We might actually do the first three, uh, first virtual reality ritual done. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Jay is working on it. We're going to be talking about it. He's hoping to get it fully up and running to do actually a virtual reality immersion of a ritual online before this summit is up, because not only are we talking about the past, as you can see, but we're talking mostly about the future. And with that, we're going to go on to uh, handing this over to Jason Mankey. Hi, and welcome to a special edition of Raise the Horn. Hi, and welcome to a special edition of Raise the Horns Radio. We're part of the Global Wicca Summit. And I'm Jason Mankey. I'm the host of Raise the Horns Radio. I'm going to be talking about the origins of modern Wiccan witchcraft tonight for a little while. We'll see how far we get into this. History is a thing I can talk about for hours and hours. I think history is a thing that a lot of people can't listen to for hours and hours. So I'm going to try to keep it mostly concise and hit on a few things. You know, it's pretty amazing to be here as a Wiccan. These are great times. I know that it is very fashionable these days in a lot of pagan circles to sort of bash on Wicca. But the truth of the matter is, is that there are probably at least a million of us in the world today. My guess is closer to two million. And Wicca's influence on the modern pagan movement is just as immense as it's always been. You know, the sort of default style of ritual that many pagans use is very Wiccan-influenced. And when I say that, I mean they call four quarters, and they cast a circle, and then they call to deities. That is pretty much in a nutshell what Wicca is. I think Wicca is something that's probably best defined by its ritual practices and not by any sort of theology. And I say that because I know Wiccans who are polytheists, I know Wiccans who believe that all deities are just facets of one greater deity. And then I know Wiccans who are atheists. So it's not like we have this very clearly defined theology, though in certain traditions, I think there are theologies that are somewhat defined. But not all of it. And today's Wicca is a big place. It's eclectic. There are hundreds of Wiccan traditions. Some of those go back quite a ways. They go back at least 70 years, perhaps even longer. Some of them are just put together through books. People practice in covens. People practice by themselves. People practice in all sorts of different ways. I think all of those people are Wiccans. I don't like to bar the, bar the gate or keep the doors closed. And, you know, as long as we're doing some of those ritual things, then I think it's all pretty much Wicca. So before I really start, I want to talk for a few minutes about magical traditions. And this is something that I am not sure that everyone is aware of, though they should be. Magical traditions are genuinely old. And by old, I mean hundreds or thousands of years old. There is this misconception that when Christianity came in, 
Christians got rid of magic. Not the case. Not the case at all. Christians were just like ancient pagans in that they used magic. Hell, every religious system, to some degree, has used magic. And some of the magic that Christians used dates back to pagan antiquity. For example, we've all heard the phrase abracadabra in stage shows. To most of us, it just sort of sounds like nonsense or just kind of a word that magicians throw out because it's expected. But abracadabra is actually a magical word that was said in magical spells. And evidence of this goes back to about the year 200 of the Common Era. So 1,800 years ago, people were using terms like abracadabra for magic. We don't use it very much anymore because I think it has just sort of become eaten up by stage magic. But it's there, and it survived. And there are probably lots of other magical traditions that if people really took the time to look at, they would find that they go back to pagan antiquity. So things are really old. Uh, here's another example. In the year, um, in the 17th century, in the 1600s, um, there was a documented magical tradition in France. People wrote down the spells and things. These were people who identified as Christians, but they wrote down the spells and they used them. And then when somebody went back in the 1950s to that same area, they found people using the exact same spells. Why? Because they worked. Because magical traditions survive and thrive. And I think a lot of those genuinely old magical traditions were later attached to Wicca. Why? Because the Wiccan framework works. It's useful. You can, it's flexible. You can do a lot of different things with it. And it really attracts a magical worldview. One of the things about Wiccan witchcraft that is monumental and earth-changing and history-changing was Wicca did something different. It, it identified witchcraft as a religion. I think it's important to note here, I know and a lot of people like to bash Wicca, it's not really witchcraft. The first people that we would identify as Wiccans wrote books with the word witch in the title. They self-identified as witches. For all intents and purposes, they were witches. And the witchcraft of Wicca was a religion. And before that, witchcraft was just a magical practice or witchcraft was something associated with the devil. It was a religious tradition, but it was the inverse of Christianity. Now, all those people who were accused of Satanism 500, 600 years ago, 700 years ago, uh, during what many of us today call the burning times, almost all of them were... Christians, at least they self-identified as such, but many of them were practicing magical traditions, but they really weren't worshiping the devil as such. There might have been a few people with something really wrong with them who thought they were worshiping the devil, but that really was not the way of things. You know, Wicca did something different. It identified witchcraft as a religion, and it's, it's an extraordinary thing. Over the years, Wicca has been labeled many different things. 
I think if you look back to the 50s and the 60s and the first modern public witches, you often heard that Wicca was a fertility religion. Back then, there was a lot of emphasis on goddess and god and male and female polarities within circles. And if you look at the Sabbath, uh, especially when you use sort of the maiden mother crone model and things, there is an emphasis placed on fertility. The maiden grows up. The maiden uh, becomes sexually active. She becomes pregnant with the baby-horned god inside her. The god dies or sacrifices himself for the fertility of the land. So god is reborn through the, through the earlier union, and the cycle continues again and again. Fertility religion. Later, a lot of people began to see it as a nature religion, and that's how they identified it. There's a lot of reasons to call Wicca a nature religion. Uh, certainly, you start with the Sabbath. Sabbaths, of course, are Samhain, Imbolc, Beltane, and Lunasa, or Lamas, along with the solstices and equinoxes. And they are not death days or birthdays or the kind of holidays that we see in monotheistic religions. They are holidays about the natural world. So, yes, very much nature right there. Also, a lot of people see the goddess as, as sort of a personification of nature. Some people see the horn god as the personification of the wild places within nature. Certainly, uh, those are valid ways to look at things. And then in the 1960s, with the beginning of sort of the hippie era, is hippie still a word that I can use without getting in trouble? It's sort of the beginning of the hippie era, era, and you had that sort of environmental consciousness come into modern pagan traditions, and it was absorbed to some degree by Wicca. And I think since then, people have been more and more likely to call Wicca a nature religion instead of a fertility religion. To me, though, what Wicca really is, it's a magical religion. Certainly, I find magic within nature. And certainly, if you think nature that Wicca is a nature religion, you are entitled to those beliefs. And I'm not trying to say that you're wrong. But to me, it's a magical religion. And I'm going to tell you why. It's because magic is such a part of every process that I do as a practicing Wiccan. I cast a magic circle. Why do I cast a circle? I cast it to keep things out and to keep magic power in. Within that circle, I interact with my deities, my goddesses, and my gods. That, to me, is an amazing thing, and it's magical. No other religious tradition really lets you get hugged by a goddess. And we can do that in Wicca when we draw down the moon. Maybe that's not magic in a hard and fast sort of definition, but to me, it's a life-changing, awe-inspiring, magical kind of experience. And then when we're in that circle, a lot of times our workings are about magic. Sometimes we simply do magic. We need a new job. Somebody is sick. There's a reason to do magical things, and that's great. Also, sometimes we raise energy for certain things, and that's magic. I feel as if when I raise energy in the circle, I connect with things beyond that circle, which to me, again, is magical. I connect with the people 
who first practiced Wicca in the early 20th century. I connect with all of you, any practitioner now, here. I connect with my ancestors. I connect with my mighty dead. I connect with the greater whole that I think is modern Wiccan witchcraft. And again, is a magical thing. I think ritual is essentially about connection. And when we do ritual, we're usually connecting to the seasons. We're connecting to our communities. We're connecting to deities. We're connecting to other entities, perhaps the mighty dead, perhaps our ancestors, perhaps the fae. And I also think that we're connecting to magical energy. And all of those things, again, to me, are magical. So when people ask me what Wicca is, I say it's a magical religion. You had magical groups that were kind of like Wicca before Wiccans were here. The most notable of those groups is the Golden Dawn, which was a late 19th century English magical order. A lot of Wiccan ideas come straight from the Golden Dawn. However, the Golden Dawn was a magical group. They were not a religious group. And what Wicca did was they, Wicca wedded the idea of a goddess and god onto that sort of magical tradition, making it something greater, making it something different. And again, that's why I call it a magical religion. I could just say that over and over, magical religion. I like that. The more I think about it, it's really what we do. We're just, magic is a part of a Wiccan's life. That doesn't mean you have to like candle spells every day. It just means that you feel the magic in the natural world. You feel magic in the environment around us. You kind of feel it everywhere. So that's what's important. So we're going to talk a little bit about history after I slurp on some coffee. And we're going to talk about history. Um, and we're going to talk about history in sort of greater religious movements. Every religion has some sort of origin myth. If you think about the Mormons, Joseph Smith, uh, this guy was visited by an angel and he found some golden tablets. Uh, Muhammad was visited in a cave. Uh, Jesus was allegedly born in a manger. There are always origin stories to religions. Almost all of those origin stories cannot be proven historically to have happened in the way that they were reported by the people that they allegedly happened to. There's no evidence for Joseph Smith's golden tablet. There's no evidence that Jesus was born in a manger. There's no evidence that Muhammad was visited by an angel in a cave. Now, those are all pretty extraordinary. Wicca's origin story can't really be proven either, but it's a lot less fanciful. It just involves a retired civil servant named Gerald Gardner being initiated into a coven of witches in 1939. We don't have a whole lot of evidence for Gerald Gardner's initiation. And it's sad, but it's true. All we really have is his word. And we have some speculation. I think it happened. There's a lot of, there were a lot of people in the area that he lived in called New Forest, England who did magical things. 
seems pretty likely that maybe a bunch of them got together and called themselves witches. But all we have is the word of Gerald himself. He talks about it in a couple of his books. Here's a little bit from one. This is from a book called Gerald Gardner Witch, which he's not listed as the author of, but was very much in charge of. Uh, you could almost call it an autobiography, even though it's not in the first person. This is what Gerald says about his initiation. Gardner felt delighted that he was about to be let into their secret. Thus it was that, a few days after the war had started, he was taken to a big house in the neighborhood. This belonged to old Dorothy, a lady of note in the district, county, and very well-to-do. She invariably wore a pearl necklace worth some 5,000 pounds at the time. It was in this house that he was initiated into witchcraft. He was very amused at first when he was stripped naked and brought into a place properly prepared to undergo his initiation. It was halfway through when the word Wicca was first mentioned, and I knew that which I had thought burnt out hundreds of years ago still survived. There's a little information there that you can use to find out about Gerald's in, uh, in initiation. He says it was a few days after the war started, which means probably late September, late August, early September, uh, the start of World War II, when England and the United Kingdom enters that war. He says the house belonged to old Dorothy, and he describes her as a rich woman with a pearl necklace worth tens of thousands of today's dollars. I would not wear that in public. Uh, putting the pieces together, we know who old Dorothy was. She was a woman named Dorothy Clutterbuck, or probably more accurately, Dorothy Fordham, Fordham being the name of her husband, Rupert, who had died previously a few months before the initiation. We know those two things. He also talked a little bit about it in his book, The Meaning of Witchcraft. Quote, but I was half initiated before the word Wicca, which they used, hit me like a thunderbolt, and I knew where I was, and that the old religion still existed, and so I found myself in the circle, and there took the usual oath of secrecy, which bound me not to reveal certain things. Considering the oath of secrecy, it's not surprising that we don't know very much about his initiation, and he would never really say very much about it, because he promised not to do it. In a letter he wrote to an English occultist named Gerald York, who was acting as the editor of his book, Witchcraft Today, which was published in 1954, he wrote of his initiation, as soon as the circle is cast and purified, they go round, what I call evoking the mighty ones, to attend, to guard the circle and witness the rites. These are many. They are supposed to stand outside and watch, seeing all is correct. Candidates for initiation are paraded around, introduced to them, and they are supposed to be satisfied, all is in order. Also, at certain rites, a god or goddess is invoked to descend and come into the body of the priestess or priest. But first, these are purified and parade around so the mighty ones outside see all is in order. This we speak of as invoking. At ordinary meetings, the god and goddess are not so invoked. The priestess and priests are simply their representatives and are not the gods themselves. I think I did not refer to this right in my book. If I did, I don't think they'll pass it. One of my favorite parts of this letter is the end of it. I don't think they'll pass it. All throughout his life, 
After Gerald Gardner went public as a witch in 1951, he talked about his initiators in the New Forest as being in charge of what information he was allowed to pass out to others. The first time Gerald ever passed out any information about witchcraft was in a fiction book that was published in 1949 called High Magic's Aid. And it has some things that we associate today with Wiccan rituals and Wiccan sort of religion, if you will. He uses the word athame for the first time, for instance. And there are circles and things, though the magical system is mostly drawn from the Key of Solomon. It's very, very easy uh, to see Wicca within that book. He did that first because the only way they would let him share any information was in a fiction book. Eventually, in 1954, he releases a book called Witchcraft Today, and then 59, The Meaning of Witchcraft, all of which, again, he said were approved by this particular little group. So what happened in 1939 with Gerald? Was he initiated into something? Is there any sort of proof for such a thing? We're going to have to go back and talk a little bit about Gerald's life before he was initiated. Gerald Gardner lived most of his life overseas. Uh, he suffered from asthma as a child, and his parents took him, uh, gave him to his nursemaid and said, take him away from England where it is damp and cold. And he spent most of his life in the Far East, later working for the British government, inspecting rubber plantations and the like. Gardner was born in 1884. So when he found Wicca in 1939, he was not an old man, but no longer a young man. And Wicca was really what sort of occupied him the last, what, 20 years of his life, even maybe the last 15. I mean, he didn't do this for very long before. So after working in Borneo, Malaysia, Singapore, Sri Lanka, um, all over the Far East, for most of his adult life, Gardner returned to the United Kingdom in the late 1930s. And in 1938, he ended up meeting a group known as the Rosicrucian Cretona Fellowship. Now, this Rosicrucian group was headed by an individual named George Alexander Sullivan, who claimed he was immortal and that he had to change his identity every few decades. Uh, Gardner did not have a whole lot of love for George Alexander Sullivan, and I'm not sure how much he actually liked the group that he was in, the Rosicrucian Order Cretona Fellowship. Um, the, the group, a lot of their magic wasn't uh, necessarily unique. It was pretty common at the time. One of the most interesting things about this group is that they did plays which uh, had magical themes, which were all written, of course, by George Alexander Sullivan, and even had their own little private theater to do these plays. So Gardner started to go to this group, and he talked about a bunch of people he met within it that he called the most interesting element. And these were people, he said, who had a very real interest in magic. 
One of these uh, people was a woman named Edith Woodford Grimes, who was born in 1887 and lived until 1975. Uh, She ended up becoming Gardner's mistress and was his partner in witchcraft for several years. Um, His wife, Donna, did not look down upon Gerald's involvement in the craft, but as far as we know, she did not actively participate in the rituals in the same way that he did. And it's most likely that through Edith Woodford Grimes, whose nickname was Daffo, that Gerald became friends with the people that he calls the most interesting element. So we know that Daffo was a real person. We know that she had a relationship with Gerald because she's mentioned by several early witches in the 1950s most notably Doreen Valiente. So we know that she was there and was doing witch things. One of the interesting things about the most interesting elements, if we look to the writings of Englishman Philip Heselton, who has written several books about the New Forest Coven, the group that initiated Gerald, and he's written extensively about Gerald himself, most recently in a book called The Witch Father, which is a two-volume biography of Gerald. Previously, he wrote about Gerald in um, Wiccan Roots was the name of the first book that he wrote. And the second is called Gerald Gardner and the Cauldron of Inspiration. I had to get up and look at my bookshelf because I couldn't remember the title of the book. Anyway, um, within the most interesting element, was probably a group of former co-Masons. And co-Masonry is a lot like Freemasonry. However, it allows for women to be actively involved in the rituals with men. So you had all of these co-Masons in the Rosicrucian Cretona Order Fellowship. And a lot of it goes back to a woman named Mabel Bassant who was the daughter of co-Masonry's founder and one of the leading lights of Theosophy, which is kind of an early New Age movement, uh, Annie Besant. In 1935, Mabel held a big title in co-Masonry, but she was suspended over in the organization due to her anger over the group Supreme Council uh, reconciling with the French Masonic group exiled from the greater world of masonry. Yes, just like there are witch wars today in the 1930s, there were co-masonry massacres. So in a show of solidarity with Mabel Bassant, members of the nearby Southampton Co-Masonic Lodge resigned from co-masonry. So you had these people who were a part of a group and then they had nowhere else to go. And because of especially Mabel Bassant's connection with her mother to Theosophy, it's very likely that the Co-Masonic group that they were a part of was doing some magical and spiritual things. So they go off and they join this group. And there are a couple of people in the, in the Co-Masonry group who might have had a big impact on the New Forest Witch Coven, most notably an individual named Ernie Mason, and whose sister, Susie, and Rosetta also joined the Croatian Fellowship and were part of the Masonic group. 
Gardner in the book Gerald Gardner Witch in the Gerald in the book Gerald Gardner Witch. Sorry about my tongue. Affectionately refers to Mabel Besant as Mabs in his book. So it's pretty definitive that he knew these people and was there with them to such a degree. I think Ernest Mason, Ernie, is probably the most intriguing when it comes to a person who might have been related somehow to, for lack of a better term, traditional witchcraft or magical practices. In Philip Heselton's book, Wiccan Roots, an informant says to Philip, quote, he was a witch, you know, the whole family were, they were mind control people, but he found the rituals too strenuous, so he couldn't do it anymore. You know, one of the most fascinating things to me about someone, to me, someone who has a huge interest in all of this history is that Ernie Mason died in 1979 and Edith Woodford Grimes died in 1975. If we'd just known a little bit more at the time, these are people that we could have asked about Gerald Gardner's initiation. And then we would have known for sure that it happened. I mean, their names in relationship to the New Forest Coven weren't really publicly known until the late 90s and early aughts. So the Mason family is fascinating because if there are real roots to a cunning craft or older magical practice, it might go through that particular group. What happened in 1939? Well, I think we've established that uh, there was a little magical group there within the Rosicrucian Cretona Order Fellowship. Uh, we know that they were all interested in magic through co-masonry. They would have had kind of a structure for things. One of the other pieces of the puzzle that doesn't quite fit is Old Dorothy. And when I was growing up in the 90s, we often heard that Old Dorothy was Gerald's initiator. Though if you look at what actually has been said over the years, Gerald said he was initiated at Old Dorothy's house and that she was not his initiator. She was not a part of the Rosicrucian Fellowship, nor was she a co-Mason. So she doesn't really fit in with these things quite as easily. However, she was very interested in theater and the Rosicrucian group did do plays and things. So it's not unlikely, I guess, that maybe she should, would have shown up. And as someone with a lot of property and money, if she was friends with these people, she could have at least let them borrow her house. Dorothy in 1939 owned two very, very large houses. We know Dorothy Clutterbuck was a real person because we've seen her birth certificate and things. She's exactly like she's described in Gerald's book, Gerald Gardner Witch. She was also a part of the conservative association in the New Forest area. He seconded her nomination to be the president of that group in 1940. Uh, so they were at least in the same room at the same time at, cert at a certain point, though a group called the, quote, Conservative and Unionist Association would probably not have been a very good place to talk about witchcraft. Though she was extremely unconventional in her life, uh, she probably had a long-term, rather open, same-sex relationship until her partner passed away in the early 30s. And then when she married Rupert Fordham, Rupert was actually still legally married when they tied the knot. 
Fordham's wife had previously been committed to a mental health facility, and they were never officially divorced. Dorothy Clutterbuck's parents were wealthy, and she was able to live as a woman of independent means her entire life, so we're not sure. It would be really cool if somebody could find a diary or something where Dorothy Clutterbuck said, yes, I'm a witch. Uh, Nothing like that has ever really come to light, but in the 1942-1943, she kept um, a little daily journal. It wasn't a diary so much, but it had like a daily meditation or a poem in it maybe some pictures. If you're looking for things that are pagan in those, you might be able to find them. If you're not looking for things that are pagan, you probably will not find it. It just really, really depends. Um, There are figures who feel like goddesses in there. There's sort of a deep love of nature in certain places. The jury is really, really... There's another person that Philip Heselton has linked uh, to this early coven of witches in the New Forest. And we know that Gerald mentions her, at least in passing, to at least Doreen Valiente, um, because in the margins of one of Doreen's books, she just writes Mother Sabine um, about this person. And this is a woman named Rosamond Isabella Charlotte Sabine. And what's fascinating about Sabine is that she was a part of a Golden Dawn organization early on in her life and continued to write about occult things into the 1930s. In a letter, Gerald refers once to old mother Sabine. But it's a strange sort of note because he talks about her having recently died when she had died five years before that but i don't i don't know i mean when you get older time really does creep up on you a little bit doesn't it so if you had the new forest witches and you had people who were interested in co-masonry and you had somebody who was a part of an offshoot of the golden dawn really you have all of the pieces of modern wicca to a large degree one of the things about modern Wicca is that we can can kind of tell where a lot of it came from. If we look at the rituals that sort of make up Wiccan witchcraft, and we look at some of the ideas found within Wiccan witchcraft, we can see that it comes from a couple of different sources. One of the biggest one is Freemasonry, and as I've already noted, the New Forest Coven was probably made up of people who were a part of a co-Masonic group. Freemasonry has a three-tiered initiation, elevation, degree system, very much like the first Wiccans did. And almost all initiation ceremonies uh, for the last 300 years have had a little bit of Masonic influence in them. Also, much of the language used in witch circles comes from Masonic tradition. Uh, When you talk about the charge of the goddess, charge is a word that was used within masonry. For a long time, people who were not witches or unmagical were known as Cowans, was originally a word which referred to non-masons. 
a lot of people don't see masonry as being a very sexy influence on Wicca. I feel just the opposite. Masonry is a really old practice. It's at least 300 years old, probably much, much older than that, and probably a, it's descended from a Scottish Masonic guild that built and designed cathedrals and castles in Scotland. Over time, it became less of a working group just for people who were involved in that particular trade and became a group that was available to anyone who really wanted to join. It ended up influencing groups like the Society of the Horseman's Word, which was a group that worked with horses. You know, there's a lot of things that are said about Freemasonry. A lot of people are like, well, it's a huge occult practice, and other people are like, it's not a cult practice at all. And it probably just really depends on what you're looking for. If you're somebody who's interested in esoteric things, you can find it within Masonry. I went to the Grand Lodge in London once in um, for all of Masonry in England, and it had beautiful pictures of gods up on its walls and giant pentagrams. If you were looking for the magical and the esoteric there, you definitely were going to find it. And if you didn't know what any of that stuff means, you probably just ignored it. So it's probably open to something, to both sort of interpretations. Books have been highly influential in the development of modern Wicca, most specifically books dealing with ceremonial magic. Written spells existed before the invention of books, but the portability of books versus scroll made them much more useful. Most early grimoires were written in Greek, Latin, or Hebrew and were inaccessible to most people, but that began to change when Europeans discovered movable type in 1450. And after that, grimoires, books of ceremonial magic, sort of took over and were everywhere for several hundred years. You know, the grimoire tradition originally started as something that was highly Christian in nature. There are prayers to Yahweh over and over in things like the Key of Solomon. But also magicians who used the grimoire tradition, they cast magic circles with swords and knives, purified materials such as salt and water. And some of the earliest witchcraft rites come nearly word for word from the Key of Solomon. Um, if you've ever you know, purified salt with your athame or, or water. That's basically from the Key of Solomon. Uh, the, in, the high magic that came from the grimoire tradition influenced the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. If Rosamund Sabine was involved in some way in the New Forest witch cult, that's another link to the Golden Dawn there. Over the last several years, Traditional witchcraft has become a thing, and it's kind of a nebulous term. I'm not always exactly sure what it means, but I think uh, for many people, it's about rediscovering magic from several hundred years ago, and a lot of that magic was contained in a tradition known as cunning craft. You know, cunning craft was basically a collection of magical lore. Some of it was things like herbalism which today we would know more as a medicine than necessarily magic. Some of it were old folk magic beliefs, and some people who practice cunning craft used grimoires and other sort of high magic books. A person who practiced cunning craft was a lot like a blacksmith. 
in a town. It was somebody who had a trade. Just because you practiced magic did not mean that you were going to be executed as a witch. And for a lot of people who practiced cunning craft, the core of their job was helping people who thought they were victims of witchcraft. Cunning craft was not always the most appreciated calling, especially in Great Britain, but it was a part of most towns, villages, and cities. And a lot of people who practiced cunning craft passed their knowledge down orally to students and family members. There are books that are several hundred years old, which have been passed down for generations that are full of magical lore and things. Again, if Ernie Mason's family practiced some sort of family magical tradition, they might have been practicing cunning craft. The Theosophical Society has had a large influence on both New Age and magical practices over the last 150 years. We don't talk about the, the Theosophical Society very much anymore, but it was founded in 1875 by a Russian knit lady named Helena Blavatsky and her friend Henry Steele Olcott. And really Blavatsky's group more than anyone else, and she would like to, she always talked about a group of secret masters, human beings who sort of ascended to a higher plane, but were nice enough to share information with her that she could pass on to other people. The Golden Dawn was really influenced by her ideas. They had their own set of secret chiefs, which were much like her Mahatmas or masters. But really, Theosophy's greatest gift to the world was its introduction of Eastern religious ideas into the Western world. Most of us who practice Wicca today are familiar with terms like karma, obviously reincarnation, and those ideas were really put into the Western world to a large degree by Blavatsky's theosophy. She took those ideas from the East and gave them to the West, and I think some of them were incorporated into Wicca. Those were all big pieces of what has today become Wiccan witchcraft, and within the New Forest Coven, you can find all of those different groups because you can find the, Theosoph the Theosophical Society um, with Mabel Bassant because her mother, Annie, was its second big leader. We can find Cunning Craft with the Mason family. We can find the Grimoire tradition and the Golden Dawn through Mother Sabine. And we can find the Co-Masons through Edith Woodford Grimes and all of those other folks. So you put all of these different ideas together, and all of a sudden, you've got a magical religion. All you have to do is just add goddess and god, and then you have to give it a name. And the name they gave it was witchcraft. There are a couple of different reasons, probably, for this. The first was, at the beginning of the 20th century, fraternal orders were all the rage. And one of the most popular fraternal orders were various druid groups. Some of these druid groups later became quite pagan, but originally there were druid groups that were much like Freemasons. So if you want to give yourself a different sort of title, maybe you use the term witch for what you were doing. Also in 1921, a woman named Margaret Murray publishes a book called The Witch Cult in Western Europe. 
And in the witch cult in Western Europe, she argues that witchcraft was an organized religion that existed side by side with Christianity for several centuries and was eventually extinguished uh, during the burning times of the early modern period when these people were executed for not being Christians. In 1931, she writes a sequel to this book called The God of the Witches. Murray's witches are not all love and light. Uh, they sacrifice babies and things in certain places. But for the most part, she paints a picture of a religious tradition that is much nicer than Christianity. It's a religious tradition that has links to the natural world. It's a religious tradition that has links to a deity that actually seems to like the people that worship it. And then she connects it all together uh, through history, through a horned god that she take, takes all the way back to a cave painting that was done 17,000 years ago. It's an amazing book. Philip Heselton speculates that witches like Dorothy Clutterbuck and Rosamund Sabine knew about this book and that it inspired them. He also suggests perhaps that they had experiences which made them believe that maybe they had past lives as witches. So they were looking to recreate the witch cult from their past life. So what really happened with Gerald in 1939? I think wholeheartedly he was initiated into a tradition. Do I think that tradition is hundreds of years old or thousands of years old? Not necessarily in the traditional sense. I assume that the people in New Forest had been practicing for a couple of years. 1935 is when Mabel Besant leaves co-masonry. Perhaps Dorothy and Sabine had been doing it a little longer than that. Perhaps not. It doesn't really matter. One of the other things about this is what they assembled and put together has long and deep roots. The grimoire tradition dates back to pagan antiquity, the ideas within those magical books goes back for thousands of years. Cunning craft utilizes magical spells and traditions that go back hundreds, if not thousands of years. The Masons go back to the Middle Ages when people thought architects were magical because math is hard and math is scary. And if you can build something like that, you have to be pretty damned amazing. Theosophy itself was a pretty new tradition, but the ideas within it were thousands of years old, just recently sort of rediscovered in the Western world. So I believe that Gardner is initiated in 1939 by these people who pulled their vast resources together and kind of came up with a framework for ritual. That framework most likely included some sort of drawing down the moon, Gardner references that. We talked about that a little earlier. Definitely a magical circle. Definitely calling the quarters. And within that, you basically have the outline of Wicca. Now, because these people had not been doing this for very long, it's certainly possible that they did not have a very well-developed ritual system and that Gardner had to go back and recreate some of these things. I mean, we know, for instance, 
that there are passages in Gardner's earliest writings that come word for word from writers like Aleister Crowley. But if you're going to look for something that's pretty magical sounding, Crowley is certainly the guy, right? Sounds witchy, feels witchy. And one of the things about it is Gardner must have undoubtedly loved witchcraft and what he was doing. Because from the moment he goes completely public with it in 1951 in a magazine article, all he does for the rest of his life until he dies in 1964 is work on witchcraft-related things. And all through that time, he talks about his initiators in the New Forest. He talks about wanting their approval, though I'm not sure that he necessarily had it the last 15 years of his life, but he talks about wanting their approval, and he seems to hold these people in awe. And his story is extremely consistent about the initiation. To me, that does not sound like a liar. To me, it sounds like someone who had this experience and met with these people and decided to do these things. The initiation of Gardner, I think, is sort of the central moment in Wiccan history. Even if there were people who were doing something that resembled Wiccan witchcraft before Gerald and the New Forest Coven, which is quite likely because all of these tools were there, it was Gerald who took it to the masses. It was Gerald who went forward in TVs, radio, magazines, and newspapers and shared the craft with people. It was Gerald who wrote the first books about modern witchcraft, 1954's Witchcraft Today and 1959's The Meaning of Witchcraft. But one thing about Gerald is the story doesn't end with him when it comes to Wicked. Gerald was just the beginning. And in the years that Gerald was practicing and then beyond that in the years after his death, there have been a whole lot of people which have sort of shaped Wicca again and again. The first is, of course, Doreen Valiente, who was one of Gerald's earliest high priestesses and who rewrote many of his rituals and then wrote what most of us would think of as perhaps the best piece of Wiccan liturgy that we know. That would be the charge of the goddess once in a month and better be when the moon is full. There ye shall assemble in some secreted place and adore the spirit of me, who is queen of all the witches. You probably all know that one. Uh, Doreen not only rewrote those rites and wrote The Charge of the Goddess, she also wrote some of the first books on modern witchcraft, starting in the late 60s up until the late 80s. And then she was a spokesperson in Britain for long after that before passing away in 1999. I was in London last fall. Oh, no. This, I was in London just this past spring. Sorry. And I was talking uh, to Geraldine Beskin, who owns Atlantis Bookstore. It's a lovely, lovely bookstore. It's kind of the greatest occult bookstore in the world, in my opinion. Anyways, I'm talking to her about Wicca. And she says that the man who really saved Wicca in the United Kingdom was Alex Sanders, who became a witch in the late 60s and then became like one of its most visible and public presences along with his wife, Maxine. Alex Sanders was a witch rock star. Uh, he, re he recorded an album for A&M Records in 1971 called A Witch is Born, which details the initiation of Janet Farrar 
while uh, Janet's husband, Stuart, narrates. It's on YouTube. I highly suggest going to get it. But some of the biggest changes to Wicca really occurred in the United States. For a long time, Wicca was something that could only be entered through initiation. If you were looking for witchcraft rituals in 1965, you had two options. Be initiated into a coven or write your own. Most people ended up, of course, being initiated into covens. But for some people, that wasn't an option, and they began writing their own, especially on the west coast of the United States. That's how you ended up with groups like the New Reformed Orthodox Order of the Golden Dawn. But by 1971, books with ritual began to be printed. The first book with anything sort of resembling a modern Wiccan ritual that we would recognize comes out in 1970, and that's Paul Hewson's Mastering Witchcraft. A lot of traditional witches look to this as a foundational text, and it's such a good book that you can find a lot of different things in it, but the last chapter of that book really talks about a Wiccan witchcraft type of system uh, almost exclusively. In 1971, the Book of Shadows, Lady Sheba's Book of Shadows comes out, which was a pirated Book of Shadows that she got from an English working group. But from that point, all of a sudden you had rituals where there didn't exist before. And anybody could go into a bookstore and buy a copy of Lady Sheba's Book of Shadows and start working as a Wiccan witch in a way that had not really happened before. In 1979, this was taken a step further with Starhawk's beautiful book, The Spiral Dance. Spiral Dance is really great because it kind of brings other witchcraft systems into a more Wiccan framework, especially the Anderson fairy tradition, which was started out here on the West Coast by Victor and Cora Anderson. Some of the ideas in the Spiral Dance come from Starhawk's training with Victor. And really, Starhawk infused awareness of the 60s onto Wicca in a way that hadn't been there before. If you look through pictures of Alex and Maxine Sanders in the 60s and 70s, you see things that look very ceremonial. You don't see people outside celebrating nature so much. You see people with a lot of ritual tools and things. Often, because Maxine was is and was beautiful, you see a lot of naked Maxine. Um, but after Starhawk, you see more and more sort of that nature-based Wicca. And Starhawk really infused that sort of idea onto the Wiccan framework in 79. Ten years later, we got another really important book called Wicca, A Guide for the Solitary Practitioner. And before Scott Cunningham's Wicca, every book about what we would call Wicca today used the word witch in it somewhere. You could find the word Wicca in certain places, but you really didn't have books called Wicca. They were all about witches or witchcraft. And Cunningham changed that in a big way. I've heard over the years that it was Llewellyn's idea to call the book Wicca, a guide for the solitary practitioner. But whoever's idea it was, uh, it was a game-changing idea. All of a sudden now you did not need to be initiated to be a Wiccan anymore. It opened the floodgates. And then the floodgates got bigger, of course, throughout the 1990s. You know, a lot of us remember Silver Ravenwolf's To Ride a Silver Broomstick. 
And I know a lot of people don't like Silver, but God, I loved that book when I was a little witchling. It was just so infused with magic and easy-to-do things, and Silver Ravenwolf is an amazing writer. You don't have to like what she writes, but she's a very talented and very good writer, and I really think she appealed to those sort of Generation X witches. The 90s were really a boom period for Wiccan witchcraft. Obviously, most people think of the craft, but it was more than just that one movie. At the end of the decade, there was Charmed, but it was more than just that. It was a whole new interest in magic. And this seems to be something that happens about every 20 years or so. And Ravenwolf's book just spoke to that generation. As we go forward, past the 90s, you know, we ended up with, you know, some other things within modern Wiccan witchcraft, online witch schools, like the group that supports this particular podcast and show Blogs is a thriving sort of Wiccan blogosphere out there. All kinds of things. And we're in the middle of another witch moment right now. Who knows what the future might hold for all of this. You know, if we look to 1939 as the start of modern Wiccan witchcraft, that means we've been here for, you know, what, 80 years now. That's a short, short period of time in the development of a modern religion. And as I said at the top of the show, there may be a million, two million people uh, doing, practicing Wicca and Wiccan-style ritual just in the United States alone, perhaps even a bigger number throughout the world. I have a, a friend who is an Ethiopian who thinks that there are only about 200,000 pagans in the United States. And I just think that's absolute bullshit and crap. Um, I run a blog site. I know what the numbers are. We know the amount of people who listen to these podcasts. And those are only a small minority of all the people out there. We know how many people read books. We are a thriving, growing religious tradition. That doesn't seem likely to change anytime soon. So here you go. A little hour on the history of Wiccan witchcraft from Gerald Gardner to hundreds, if not thousands of years before that uh, to all the way here to 2018. Enjoy the summit throughout this week and next. I'm Jason Mankey. I'm right. Raise the Horns Radio, a blog at a place called Raise the Horns, etc., etc. Always thanks to Witch School for supporting this little podcasty show. And I'll talk to you all later. Blessed be. And you're listening to the Global Wicked Summit, which will continue on our channels on Global uh, Blog Talk Radio slash Global Wicca. And you'll also be listening to uh, Witch and Famous, uh, Blog Talk Radio Witch and Famous, which will continue on with Elizabeth Hamilton at 11 p.m. Central Time, 12 to midnight. And uh, we will be shortly, with our Global Wicked Summit, we'll be adding more. Um, Due to to, a difficulty, uh, we are going to be bringing you the Reverend Apu's interviews from the Philippines. We're going to reschedule them and and get those broadcasts as well. I, I want to thank you. And uh, so we're going to continue on with our programming. 
We're going to continue on with our, our, our excitement. Please join us. And remember, tonight, you know, you can do everything else. If you'd like to help us with us to attend the Parliament, as you heard, it is the dailyspell.com slash P fund, P, the letter P, F-U-N-D. And you can help us raise cash for that as well. So you've been listening to uh, Pagan's Tonight Radio. And with that, we're going to go continue on. We're going to give uh, a small another piece from one of the great voices, a interview we did with uh, Dr. Raymond Buckland. Hello, this is Reverend Don Lewis, and welcome to another week of Living the Wiccan Life. This week, we're coming to you from Columbus, Ohio, and the 19th Annual Universal Light Expo. And I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself if you would, not that you really need to. <laughs> okay. Well, sometimes I wonder who I am myself. I'm Raymond Buckland. Uh, I've written a, a number of books on various aspects of, of metaphysics. Um, I love writing, which is why I, I had my first article published when I was about 12 years old, and I've never looked back from there. My first book published in 1969. I've written about 60 since then. I've been translated into 17 foreign languages. Um, and my, my father was a writer, and he inspired me, and this, I think, gave me my love of writing. And I'm never going to have enough time to write all the books I want to write. Uh, I have so many ideas, I'm usually writing two or three books at the same time. Uh, I have more, more recently found that I much prefer writing fiction to non-fiction, although the majority of my books are non-fiction, but... Uh, I've, had, uh, I've got a couple of uh, novels out at the moment. I've got three more coming out probably next year. Uh, I've just finished a large fantasy novel, Tolkien type of fantasy novel. And right now I'm working on another uh, sort of mystery novel which is based loosely on the Golden Dawn and the Illuminati. You're, you're certainly one of the most prolific writers that I have knowledge of. And did, I believe you wrote uh, some television screenplays one time. Uh, some screenplays, yes, not, yeah. not for TV. Yes, I, I wrote about six of them, none of which actually made it to the screen. Some came very close, but this is, is typical. Uh, most of them, but I think all of them I wrote when I was living in San Diego. And, of course, I was close to, uh, to L.A., so I could hop up there. Um, I worked very closely for some years with, with John Carradine, the old character actor, and uh, he put me in touch with Vincent Price. Uh, I worked with, um, with Bill Friedkin, who directed The Exorcist and, and other things. Uh, let's see, I worked closely with Dean Semler, who he won an Oscar as cinematographer for Dances with Wolves. And in fact, I was doing one screenplay for him. He wanted to do some directing rather than cinematography. And in fact, I was working on that the weekend before the, the Oscars. Uh, we were there together. And then on the Tuesday, I think it was, he went and won the Oscar. And then the following weekend, we were working again on the screenplay. So I got lots of photographs of myself holding the Oscar. <laughs> Uh, but yes, I, I did a number of screenplays. Um, Francis Ford Coppola had one of them, which he held on to for a long, long time. But for various reasons, none of them ever actually got there. Uh, you have been 
as you say, you've been writing a very long time. You've been in the metaphysical community a very long time. You've been formative to the Wiccan community. Mm -hmm. And I guess I would like to ask you what kind of changes you've seen in your career. On incredible changes over the years. I, I introduced Wicca to this country in 1963, beginning of 64, and of course it's, it's grown incredibly since then. So it, it's amazing to me how much it's grown and to what extent it's accepted. Uh, I've seen a lot of changes with it. Uh, for instance, originally, Gerald Gardner and myself, we referred to it as witchcraft and called ourselves witches. And then gradually a movement started saying, well, let's call ourselves Wicca so that people don't think we're the old style witches. And Gerald and I both said, well, if you change your name, how long before people say, well, they call themselves so-and-so, but they're really witches. So we figured it was much more important to, to educate people on the misconceptions of witches and witchcraft. But gradually, I guess, the, the other side, as it were, took hold. And these days, people think of Gardnerian and similar types as Wicca. And they apply the word witchcraft to just spell casting and magic and what have you. And of course, you get a lot of uh, what we often call fluffy bunny types who want to cast spells, want to do magic. And really, if that's all they want to do, then they can do that. They don't have to be witches, they're magicians. So you can do magic, you can be a magician, you don't have to call yourself a witch. But anyway, this is the way things are going, and I think, um, in some ways it's a shame, I think witchcraft is getting diluted to the point where it doesn't really mean anything. But still the hardcore Wicca, uh, what's now called Wicca, which is the, the religious aspects, the belief in the gods, the celebration of the, of the Sabbaths and Esbats and so on, uh, is that hardcore, and I think that will always remain. But outside that, it's got to the point almost where anybody can say and do anything and say, this is witchcraft, and nobody can say, no, it's not, because we've, we've lost the, the borderlines, if you like, of it. What would you like to see change in the future? Um, I would like to see witchcraft established even more so as a, a, a recognized religion. I mean, we've made tremendous strides in that, that direction. It, it's um, recognized in so many places. Just recently, we've, we've had it accepted that we can put pentacles on the headstones of, of uh, soldiers and, and, and so on who've died in, in the war. Uh, so we've made tremendous strides there. And let me acknowledge Selena Fox who has done so much in that direction. She's a, a wonderful mover and shaker. Uh, I would like to see more of that to the point where you can go and just about anywhere and talk about witchcraft and Wicca and accept it as, yes, just another religion. I doubt that we will get to that because we've always got the fundamentalist Christians there who will never accept anything other than their own own versions of things. But um, I would like to like to see a, a more positive step in that direction. Uh, my last question: We were talking uh, before that you've come to this show many times, mm -hmm. and um, let me ask, what do you like about this particular show? 
it's close to home, it's only a two hour drive away. Um, it's a large show with a lot of variety. Uh, it's been going for some time, so it's well established. But uh, I think it is, it is the variety. It draws so many wonderful people here. The exhibitors uh, are all wonderful people. And the people who come here are, I've met all sorts of in incredible people. And they're all sincere, and I think this is probably the, the key word, sincerity, with this show. Everybody seems sincere in their interests, both the, the booths and, and the people who come. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure, believe me. Thank you. Thank you. listening to Pagans Tonight. Pagans unite on Pagans Tonight. Many paths, one network. For over five years, we've been the place to connect with the best, brightest, and most trusted voices in the pagan world. Every night is Pagans Tonight.